Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmoy. I'm uh, the other host, Mr. Craigers. It, it truly never dies, no matter how hard you try to kill it. Yeah. October will never die. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, it is our 50th episode for those of you, all, all two of you who I can name right now, who uh, have listened to all 50 <laughs> episodes. It is our 50th episode. It is also our two-year anniversary they double what? Double what? They're coinciding on the same episode like a friggin' full moon. So, in honor of that, we decided what is the thing that is the ultimate sort of ode we can do to ourselves and to horror? Mm-hmm. At which point we realized, pun incoming, that we are going to do a massive episode on the king of horror himself, Stephen King. What if I said <laughs> Dan Coons? <laughs> what if I followed that up with Dan Coons? You're just like, oh yeah, you know, Coons. Coons. <laughs> then the, you know, the 10 listeners that we do have immediately unsubscribe. <laughs> That's it. That, that was the kicker. That's the um, kicker. Yeah, gone. It's going to be, I imagine it's going to be a long episode if my uh, power cooperates. Yeah. That was a little freaky. Storms um, are coming. Storms, I guess. I don't know. There's nothing here, but you didn't, you didn't feel it in your bones. I'm thinking somebody maybe was drying their hair or something, and they just and yeah, watching TV and yeah. just the running the blender. Yeah, someone in my building just was going ape with their with their uh, electric power. dildo was on. Yeah, you know they were just having a great time drying their hair, eating some popcorn, watching some TV, watching having some fun. TV. And having fun. <clears throat> um, but yes, we're back. Uh, hopefully it will not, you know, it will stay on. It will also not weirdly go out in sync with me talking about Slenderman. Um, we will get to why I was talking about Slenderman in our horror headlines. Uh, Mr. Yeah. Cruggers, would you like to go first? I would. I would. Um, so for those... Uh, um, Oh, I was just, I was going to make a funny comment about the official name of it, but I can't. I was, puppetry. What's puppetry called? Puppetry? Is it just called puppetry? Yeah. Puppeteering. Whatever. Puppeteering. I don't know what, I don't know what your end game is. So I For can't those help you. of you who like puppets, <laughs> damn it. Oh, people who, oh, I see what you're going. Let's see um, here. The new Puppet Master movie is out. Uh, puppet Master, the littlest Reich, um, has been released straight to. Uh, yeah, it's just called Puppeteers. VOD, and this uh, is the 13th installment in the Puppet Master franchise. Um, I cannot speak too, too much about The Littlest Reich, um, because I, I'm very behind on the Puppet Master franchise. I probably haven't seen the last five or six of them. Um, I know that like alternate timelines have been involved, and there's like some deep, <laughs> deep Nazi mystic shit. They had the time travel in Stab Four. It's Stab Four. That's literally Puppet Master. Um, but I, I do know that uh, Barbara Crampton is coming back um, for uh, this latest entry into Puppet Master. So. Also, yeah, I'd like to. I'm not going to poke too many holes at it, but the whole Nazi thing, like in the Puppet Master franchise in general, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. The Littlest Reich. That's that whole thing is just fascinating. 
It is fascinating. Actually, a uh, friend of the show, Jamie Poland, um, was texting me. Or was she texting? I don't know if she was texting both of us. She and her boyfriend recently delved hardcore into the Puppet Master movies. I recall this. <laughs> and uh, she was texting me for certain points of clarification and and. I was trying to provide her with as much knowledge as I could about the <laughs> Puppet Master franchise, but it, it ended up just sort of her just into more confusion. And I was just like, you just have to run with it. And she was like, but there's so many Nazis. And I was like, yeah, no, you, you just have to go with it. There was probably a lot of Nazis during World War II as well. So, you know. so, so that's going, so that's going on in that world. Um, I'll also just do a quick shout out. Um, if anyone's looking for something new to binge on Netflix, I've really been enjoying the first season of The Sinner. Oh, my oh, sister was watching be- that. Yeah. Now, it's not straight up horror. It's sort of one of these like very dark, noir mysteries <coughs> that are all right? the rage. Wasn't it yeah, a book? It was a book. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely horror elements, and it has definitely... I can't remember if it was the end of episode three or four that they had this like sort of final shot, final moment. And I was like, well, that's incredibly disturbing. So I check it out. It's not straight horror, but it's horror adjacent. And it's really, really good. I think the second season is currently airing. um, And the first season's on Netflix. I remember my sister explaining to me the plot of it. And I was like, that sounds like The Stranger. It's, it also has been reminding me of, what else has it been reminding Oh, it has a lot of similar, well, not a lot of similarities, but some similarities to um, Sharp Objects, which is also airing. Yeah, I got that vibe from, from what I've seen. On HBO, based on the uh, Gillian Flynn novel, which is very good. And um, the HBO miniseries has also been very good. Nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, on my horror headlines, Slender Man came out, the movie. This is like the third attempt to adapt the Slenderman legend to the big screen. Once again, it falls flat with a solid 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, basically being called... 12% more than I anticipated. 12% more than, than what I wanted it to have. Um, it's being called Boring and Derivative, which we knew already. I personally would like to see a version of this kind of come to life... You know, kind of in like a House of Leaves, like Blair Witch style, where it's, you know, like, play up the, the creepypasta, play up the sort of Lovecraftian elements of it. You want more snot crying? Yeah. Blair Witch. I want, I want I Slender Man what... to be snotting in the camera <laughs> mm-hmm. the entire movie. But he doesn't have a nose. That's the secret. That's the scary, truly That's scary, the scary part, part about Slenderman. Um, yeah, because I mean, the history of Slenderman is interesting. Obviously, at this point, he's become so like oversaturated that he's not scary anymore the way he was when we were in like college. Um, yeah, I think that's my thing. I think when you take him out of the computer screen and put him on the big screen, I think he loses so much of what makes him mm-hmm. uh, frightening. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I also want to. I I like. I also kind of feel if you want a real, you want to tell a horror story surrounding Slender Man, why not the story about the two girls yeah, that took Jesus. it too far and and murdered another girl from their class? Yeah, the real life story. Um, work with that, yeah. you know. Well, that's like what I, I wish they had done with um, <clears throat> uh, Winchester. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, where's the, give me the real story. That was weird. That's a really good point. Apparently they the- are making a documentary about um, what happened with the, the girls. Uh, HBO. Oh, really? Yeah, HBO is making a documentary. Do we know? Do we know who produced oh, the Slenderman movie? Because they, they already released that documentary. Oh, they did. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Now that you say that, I think I remember. Yeah, HBO has a documentary about it. <laughs> about um, that. As far as the oh, that's probably good. They do great documentaries. They do do really good documentaries. Uh, the producer. Because I'm wondering, the, if you it want was. the company or the list of names? The company who? Yeah, who? Because I'm wondering if it's if it was Sony. Oh, Sony. Did so- Sony didn't do Winchester, though. I don't think they did. Although they might have. Just because, I mean, you saying that just made me think, oh, wow, like, there's there's so much. There's That's let's, kind of really similar. I wouldn't be surprised. Quick, I want to say Winchester was actually Lionsgate. Let's do a quick little... Um, it was produced by... was produced by Hammer Films, but who... CBS Films distributed. Oh, interesting. The hell? This is bizarre. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, Slender Man is out if you want to watch it. I wouldn't suggest it. Um, it sounds like it's garbage. Uh, if you want a good scare, just, you know, play the original Slender Man video game. And that'll be that. Right. Uh, my other thing is that American Horror Story is happening. But they did announce that Jennifer Lynch will be directing an episode. Very cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'll be, yeah, I'll be interested to see, you know, what sort of, you know, when sandwiches fall out of the ceiling in that episode and, you know, they're speaking French the entire time, but pretend they're speaking English. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think she's very well suited to a show like American Horror Story. Yeah. Because I feel as though Ryan Murphy imagines himself as a David Lynch. He thinks he's David Lynch's other child. Um... And he's not. And I don't think he understands. He's like, I'm the David fifth Lynch. I'm the fifth David Lynch child. The fifth David Lynch child. Which then again, no one understands David Lynch, but you know what I mean. I think Jennifer's the only like big of his children, the only person who's like a big name in their own right at this point though. Yeah, I don't think his other kids followed into the same field. He did his son is his one of his sons is in a band. And the mm. band actually appeared as one of the bands in The Return. Playing. Oh, I do remember yeah. seeing that. Okay, yeah. Um, but other good, than that, good. I don't think anyone else is really, Okay, yeah. Well, really and David Lynch himself is a big music producer. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Fun stuff there. Yeah. Um, also, The Meg is out. It's been out for a while. Um, oh boy. I haven't seen it. I'm not opposed to seeing it. I just probably won't go out of my way to see it. Um, so I know you Creature Feature fans out there, if you've checked it out or if you're going to check it out, let us know what you think. Yeah. Big old, big old shock. Our, our obsession with the Megalodon continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that'll wrap it up for Horror Headlines for now. But we also have some correspondence. We do, you guys. It's very exciting. Um, I want to apologize to Lindsay, I see that um, once again you emailed us a while ago, and I just—it's my fault. I did not check the Splatter Chatter email when we recorded the Sweeney Todd episode, 
and I could have, we could have responded to you, but we will respond to you now. Yes. All right. So Lindsay, um, for those of you who have been listening, will recall, sent us an email that we addressed a couple episodes ago, and it was primarily about uh, werewolf recommendation, yeah. I believe. Yes, it was. Because I recommended uh, Red, Red Moon. It was a book. That's but... right. Yes. And what did I recommend? American I Werewolf in London. American Werewolf in London. Shocking for me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so Lindsay has written us back, and she says... Hi, Splattershatter. Thank you so much for answering my email on the show. You're welcome. I just got caught up listening to everything, driving home from vacation. Where did you go? I hope you had a wonderful time. <laughs> vacation. That was me, not Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to watch all the movies that you mentioned. Several exclamation points. Two more questions. Do you know about Shudder? It's like Netflix, but just for horror movies. I see ads for it on Facebook, but I don't know anyone that has it, so I don't know if it's worth it or what the selection is like. Second question. If you had to choose of which if you had to choose which famous horror killer could kill you, who would you pick? Options are Leatherface, <laughs> Jason Voorhees, Freddy, Michael Myers, and Pinhead. Thanks, Lindsay. <sighs> <laughs> so I had an so, immediate thought about that. You want to do the second question first, then? Well, my immediate <laughs> thought was like, well, at least Pinhead gets me. That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> and, you know, a, a certain way. <laughs> if you're into certain things, maybe. If you're maybe. into certain things. See, my thought about Pinhead, though, is that it's going to take forever. Oh, yeah. Like, he's going to torture you and flay you and cut off body parts that you don't need to survive and yeah. all that's going to be torture. Ah. My gut instinct is to say Jason because chainsaw? But he Jason's so quick. But a chainsaw hurts. Are you thinking of you're thinking of Leatherface? I'm thinking of Leatherface. <laughs> no, I definitely a machete don't hurts. A machete <laughs> does hurt, but it's gonna be like I knew as like, I was saying that I was like Jason didn't have a chainsaw. It's gonna be like slash slash done. Yeah, but I don't know the idea of like getting cut just because I'm such a fucking baby. Even when I have like paper cuts, the idea of dying by a similar, if more severe, wound is not my favorite. I will, however, do you know kinky shit to death. Kinky shit to death. I mean, definitely not Freddy. No, absolutely like, not. Especially the not nightmares and the psychological torture. Especially, yeah, like, I'll take the physical torture of, this is not saying I want to go out and get physically tortured, but if given the option, I will take the physical torture of Pinhead over the emotional, mental torture of Freddy Krueger. Um, you know, I just, that's absolutely not i will not be i will not be getting killed in my dreams you want to kill me you better do it right here right now no that's right yeah you got to come for me in real life if that's um, the shit you want yeah also he finds a really fucking ridiculous ways to kill people too you know like he the does. the q-tip through the ear and then the the one kid whose tendons got ripped out and you know so mm -hmm. it's like i don't know yeah i'm sticking with freddie maybe michael because both of them they like they stalk you but you don't know you're being stalked and then it's yeah. just kind of like, they pop up, stabby stab, you're dead. Plus, you could live out like your dream quick. of just doing the chi-chi ha-has constantly. And the chi-chi ha-has. 
I thought that's what I would do as I was dying. And then he'd actually just end you very, and then very he would quickly. Just like, yeah. And um, I'd be like, what? And that's how you get that's how you get through it without, you know, immense amounts of tortures. You just do the chi ha ha's. The chi ha ha's. So yeah, I'm gonna go first choice Jason, second choice Michael. I gotta I gotta live I gotta die the way I live my life and I gotta be <laughs> doing it having fun, so You're going with Pinhead? I'm going with Pinhead. Get sucked right, into sexies. the the Cenobites realm. Oh my. Oh, oh my. What's oh. his what's his fucking monologue where he's like you do not know pain, like that yeah, giant monologue. That's, you, you ready to hear that too? Yeah, when you're like, I mean, I'll when sit you've got like when you've got like fish hooks in your nips, fucking sit through it. Yeah, you get the guy who gets like pulled apart, fish hook style. Mm-hmm. And that's gonna be you. That's gonna be me. Sexy. Uh, as for the second question, I have not used Shutter. Um, it reminds me a little bit of like basically an on-demand version of. Uh... Oh my god, what was it called? Chiller. Chiller. Jesus. I wanted to say chatter. I was like, no, we're chatter. We're chatter. Um, chiller, which is no longer a thing, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd be down for using shutter, though. I mean, I just haven't done it. Yeah. Yeah, I've used I've used shutter. Um, and then I didn't have it for a while. And now I use the shutter add on on Amazon Prime. Oh, can uh, I just do that? That sounds way easier. Yeah, well, but here's the thing. <laughs> what I'm going to recommend to Lindsay and to you and everybody, really, though, is if you're going to use Shutter, I know this is counter to what I'm doing, but I would actually go directly through them rather than Amazon because the cheaper. selection is slightly different. Oh, yeah. Might as well go to yeah. the source. Yeah, you get more Single through female. Shutter directly than on Amazon. Single white female is that on there right That's now? It's on there, yeah. Great. They actually but look what like about they have single some... white female to the site. I don't see it. They actually look like they have a good amount of um, animated horror as well. Yeah, they do, which is a growing subgenre. Yes, I love it. I wish people would would talk about it more and look at it more. Yeah, no, but but on the whole, um, yeah, Shutter's really great. They have a lot of really good. Oh, there's Hellraiser. Um, a really good selection from more well-known stuff to some really obscure hidden gems. Things that like they have a lot of originals. I feel like I've seen, but I'm like, oh my god, <gasps> Cube like, Zero. So know about that? Cube yeah. Two Hypercube. I think they have all of them. Oh my god, this is great. So, I definitely recommend Shutter. Oh, they have the Bay. The Bay is very good. The Bay is very good. They have... What did I watch on there most recently? Oh, Tourist Trap. <laughs> which is an awesome 80s uh, underrated slasher. So Yeah, no, this cool. looks like a solid investment for those of you willing to pay four bucks a month. Which yeah, I am. So I think right. I might do it. Yeah. And then, you know, I don't... Uh, you, you know. can see some good shit. I mean, tis the season. Do they have an app? Can I Chromecast this onto my TV? Or you should sell this to me, Craig. I don't know. <laughs> I'll figure it out. But I want to say yes. I mean, not that I don't mind sitting at my computer, but you know, sometimes you. But wanna... worst case scenario, if the, if Shutter doesn't have an app, then you can just add it onto your Amazon. And then yeah, do it that. Yeah, way. and go Too through there. True. Either way, I can get it on my TV. Yeah. 
but they're cool. I like the design of their website. They do like famous like yeah. horror quotes and stuff. At I the like bottom. the uh, if you slide across their top menu, uh, each tab that you're on does a it it's dynamic. It responds with a yeah. nice little shutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's fun. Yeah, they're cool. They're a good service. So if that's what you were asking about, Lindsay, like it, it seems like you were. Um, yes, the selection is worth it. It's very varied. Um, go for it. Oh, the annual membership is actually cheaper. Oh. Well, because I guess they bill you all at once. Right. That makes they sense. They will bill you a year in advance. Otherwise, you can pay four ninety nine a month. What's the year? What's the oh? What's the year? So for the yearly one, it would come out to three ninety nine a month, but you get paid forty seven. You pay forty seven eighty eight up front for the That's entire so year, and then the monthly is just four ninety nine a month, mm. and then you can cancel it whenever you. That's pretty good. Desire. It does say I do think they have an app because I'm seeing iPhone and oh, Apple TV and Android and Roku, um, and a couple others, but none of the others apply to me. Um, See, there you go. On their thing. So, yeah, this is this is a solid investment. Awesome, you guys. And, hey, maybe we'll just, like, we'll just build this community. All of our listeners will get Shutter. We can have group viewings. Group Shutter. Yeah, Whatever no, that'll, this seems like it would be a good place to harvest some, uh, some booze and moves. Yeah. And, um, and, and great hidden gems. They have a lot of good stuff on there that usually only like deep fans know about. So um, if you want to broaden your interest in horror, you know, past like the titles that everybody knows about, this is the place to do it. Yeah. So we also have a second email. Um, and this is from Ben. Ben. And Ben says, hey, Splatter Chatter. Great show. Love listening to your episodes about urban legends. Oh, Ooh, that's an oldie. Yeah. It made me wonder, would you ever do an episode about aliens? Sighting stories are my favorite and can be pretty creepy. Thanks, Ben. Hmm. I'd do it. Aliens. Aliens. So yeah. I have this very controversial opinion about aliens, though. And oh. by opinion, I mean, you know, backed by fucking facts. <laughs> But it's not as fun. Or you can consider it more terrifying if you think about it. Um, But basically, there's like basically more likely than not, based on a lot of Fermi paradox stuff and the great filter theories and all that, we're like most likely super alone in the universe. (laughs) Which is good for us because it means that, you know, we're more likely to not be killed in some sort of apocalypse for for you can look up the great filter in the fermi paradox and, and study it yourself but if you think it's also kind of more terrifying than the possibility of aliens coming down and sucking out our brains because it's like you shot out into the ether and nothing's gonna nothing's gonna shut back we're the only ones <laughs> so ben basically you've asked the right question because miss <laughs> mel is a secret space nerd so would we be willing to do an episode about aliens yes yes <laughs> and we tie it into horror i mean you've got aliens you got, you got yeah. alien you got aliens we could talk about how much prometheus sucks yeah we would we can do we definitely kind. have a lot to talk about there's a lot of alien horror out there yeah there is a lot <laughs> and a lot of and like you said like sightings yeah there are people stories about sightings can be really creepy. yeah and i'm willing to talk i mean i used to live in in phoenix which is like alien sighting capital 
Oh, yeah, of course. Miss Nell and I, of course, have also mentioned on the show that we're big fans of the X-Files. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to talk about if we do an episode or a series of episodes about aliens. So, yeah, that's um, thanks for the idea. Yeah. Um, and Ben, and we'll... We'll have a good uh We'll talk about of, that on the uh, production side of things. Of sci-fi and horror. I think they go well together when they're... Yeah, when done right, sci-fi horror right. can be amazing. Event Horizon, Event anybody? Horizon. I was going to say it, and you said it first. Event Horizon. Very good. We should do that. We should compare that to Night Flyers. Because I think Night Flyers is just Event Horizon. I know. But I'm not watching Night Flyers, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> but we can. I also haven't read the novella, but, you know. Me neither. But we also can do that. Everyone and their mother checked it out of the library. Well, I think it's time... If you think it's time, my lovely co-host. I do think it's time. Awesome. Then we're going to dive into the main portion of tonight's episode, which is... (laughs) Um, And kind of as uh, Miss Mel alluded to earlier, there's no agenda. Um, We don't really have any notes. We don't have any, like, major sticking points. (laughs) It's Whatever not going to be happens. sort of like a, he was born here. It's it's just going to be whatever comes up for however long we feel like talking about it. Potentially the most casual we've ever done. And we will see what happens. Yeah. That's I can that. think of, a, of an opener. Mainly because I've been thinking about it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> what was your first introduction to Stephen King? Yeah, to Stephen King. So, and this kind of runs contra. Well, okay. When you say introduction, are you thinking literary or? So, what is the first thing you ever remember Stephen King wise? Period, and like knowing it was like a a Stephen King thing, whether it's literary or movie. Okay, gotcha. So, first ever, it would definitely be. the 1990 miniseries of It. Ooh. And I first saw that, I think I've mentioned this on the show, when I was far too young. I want to say I was like eight or nine. So like when I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, just about. I, I, I think nine, which would have been third grade. Third grade was a big year for me. Um, that was also my introduction to Harry Potter. My my other lifelong. A lot happened for you that year. Yeah, and it um I was having a sleepover with my sister and my cousins. We were at my cousins. They had this big finished basement, and uh, you know, ton of um, my uncle, big movie fan, right? A lot, most of my family, huge movie fans. So these big. Big hard oak shelf <laughs> full of VHS tapes. I like the visceral, your visceral memories of this. Yeah, and so we're all down in the finished basement, and we we know that we want to watch something scary, and we're waiting for my aunt, and my uncle to go to sleep, and they eventually do. And we're going through the options, and we pull out the the two two whatever um, two tapes. What I'm going for for it, and we pop it in, and the rest is history. Um, so and of course, it's terrifying because I was nine. <laughs> and, 
And you watch it now, and like I'm thinking of the effects, like when he pulls the drain open, and it's it's like the claymation, you know. Yeah. And, but but at the time, it's like, oh my god, I can never shower ever. <laughs> the clown will come out of the drain. Absolutely not. That's about the time you were like learning to shower instead of instead of bathtubbing too. Right. And then you're like, fuck no. Yeah. So that was my first overall introduction to anything Stephen King related. Yikes. How about you? Um, so me, it was, I would have been, it would have been after um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, um, but not that long after. Basically, I remember I was at my my house and my mom was watching, I don't know if she was watching it or she just had it on because this isn't really her type of thing to watch, but she was watching The Shining. And she had The Shining on, and I specifically remember I didn't, I caught the end of it. Like, I came downstairs, and I was in the kitchen, and she was doing, she was in the kitchen, and it was just on in the living room. And it was the scene um, where Danny's backing up in his own footprints in the snow. And I was, I asked my mom, I was like, what the heck, what is he doing? Like, what, what, what's that? And she was explaining to me that he was backing up so his dad wouldn't find him. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, what is that Because <laughs> I had no idea what it was. Um, and then I just see, you know, good old Jack Torrance running around like a maniac in the snow and then the shot of him frozen afterwards. And that was like my first Stephen King anything was just seeing the ending hedge maze scene <laughs> to The Shining when I was probably about nine or ten years old. And I do believe it was like around it was in wintertime. Like, I think they thought they were clever showing it like in January or something like that. Um, and I remember well, I know AMC used to do that a lot. Yeah. And I, I now watch it. Like I, when we had that big blizzard, like three years ago, it's exactly a great I winter. I sat movie. in my basement and I watched the shining. I think I watched it, uh, this past winter when we got snowed in here and you know, they canceled work. So I was like, yeah. well, the shining, well, I guess it's time for the shining followed by some oh, of the thing. Did I, watch the shi- I think I was going to say, I think I watched the thing. I, yeah. I've seen you do both. Watch. Well, in the snow. Um, But yeah, so that was like my first uh, Stephen King memory was the the, the ending hedge maze scene to The Shining, which, you know, is like the most terrifying. Most terrifying. (laughs) But you could have. Great introduction. Yes. And what an interesting introduction because we know that he hates it. Yes, yes, it is his least favorite. Or he has said it's the only adaptation of his, um, his stuff that he. He has not liked. He doesn't agree with it. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's so interesting. And I feel like this totally runs counter to my personality. Like, you know, after it, like, I grew up with a pretty healthy dose of cinematic Stephen King. Right? Watching a lot of adaptations of his stories. But I never, I never read him. I never really read his stuff. Mm-hmm. I just watched it. And it wasn't until um, I was uh, I was I was in college. It was it was interesting. The fall of 2009 actually. So I was a freshman in college and I picked up a copy of um, Full Dark No Stars. Uh, mm. his um, novella anthology um, or maybe it was 2010, early 2010. It doesn't matter. 
Um, and that was the first time I had ever actually read anything by him. And it was kind of one of those things where it was like, what the fuck took me so long? Yeah. And and I loved it. I adored every single one of those novellas. I think they've all now been made into movies. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. It was four of them. I think they're all movies now. Um, and so... I was I was like I need to get my hands on everything he's ever read, <laughs> and um, I read it immediately after. Wait, I'm watching. Now I'm trying to think. What's the timeline here? The timeline. Maybe I did read it first. It That's was a, late. It was late high school, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's a okay, guys. I lied. Big one to take on. I think First. it was the summer after I graduated. And it was amazing, of course. And then Full Dark No Stars, like about a year later. My bad. The point is, <laughs> it's, it was after Full Dark No Stars where I, I decided, I was like, I need to read everything. And so I went to a half-price books near me and I bought as, um, I, I, I just literally cleared out the shelf that they had and and, and took everything they had. A lot of it was like first edition or first printing rather. Oh, nice. A lot of his stuff. And then what I didn't have, I just sort of like bulked and ordered on Amazon over the next couple weeks. And when I would buy his new stuff too. And then I just, um, kept reading here and there. I read Joyland and I read 112263. And then I decided that I wanted to read um, all of his works chronologically. And so... Yes, I remember you telling me that you wanted to Yeah, do so I kind of made that like my mission goal thing. But I gave myself the little like asterisk privilege that if I wanted to, I could read anything published after Full Dark, No Stars. Um, what a so nice can, little loophole. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and when I, and once I read the first Dark Tower, once I read Gunslinger, I just read all of them, basically back to back. Nice. I didn't go in publication order for those. Those so those are the other exception. So yeah. Nice. Oh, and on writing was an exception. Yeah, I'm reading on writing right now. So good, right? It is very good. Um, the first Stephen my literary history. Yeah. No, no, it's very, very good. Um, I, yeah, so I saw, I had seen bits of The Shining, obviously, um, but I didn't pick up a Stephen King book until I was in college as well. Um, and I picked up the first one. I bought together The Shining and Salem's Lot. Um, Was I with you? No, but I texted you to ask which one I should get. Okay. Um, and those were the two you said, and those were the two I went with. Um, I read The Shining first. Um, so I can I re I like remember where I was like reading The Shining too. Yeah, no, I demolished it. Granted, it was only a couple of years ago, but still. Um, yeah, no, I and then I I remember so like I hadn't seen the full version of The Shining until after. So I read the book and I was like, oh. I'll actually sit down and fucking watch The Shining because I'd never actually seen it in full because I just caught just snippets of it. Um, so I was like, oh, this is cool. This is so different, but it's cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's so different. Um, and then Salem's Lot. What, what's on my shelf back? Let me turn around and look here. Put these in order. I got Doctor Sleep. I haven't read Doctor Sleep yet, but it's been sitting on my shelf for a while. It's good. It's 
as much as it is a sequel to The Shining, it's also very standalone. Interesting. Yeah, I I will eventually get around to that. Um, I read The Stand. Fucking loved it. Um, Fucking loved The Stand. Oh, yes, I forgot to say I... So chronologically, I'm up to... My next one will be Christine. Oh, nice. So I've... Yeah. So I've read from, like... Yeah. Anyway. The problem is, is I want to reread The Stand because it was so good, but I do not have the time or the energy. <laughs> well, it's a it's, thousand pages. It's a once every you? ten years thing. Yeah, um, it totally is. And then I got up to Wizarding Glass in um, Dark Tower. Dark Tower. I'm, I'm going to start Wolves of the Cala, but right now I'm on to my fall reading list and I can't do anything more it. than like 500 pages or else that's just going to decimate my plan here. So we'll get to that. Um, but I also have started working my way through Night Shift. Um, oh, read, I like... read a good couple number of those. I recently read The Outsider. Wasn't yeah. my favorite. I do have a theory. Do you want to close you your think, ears? You think it might connect somehow to Castle yeah. Rock, right? Do you want to close your... Do you want to not listen for three seconds while I, while I pose the... All right, I'm going to take yours. out my headphones. Right, will, Give me some sort of hand signal when I will, it's safe. I will let you know when it's safe to come back on. Okay. Okay. So, those of you still listening, it is spoilers. Hopefully Mr. Craigers can't read lips. Um, so, for those of you who have are caught up with Castle Rock and who have read The Outsider, my question for you is, do you think it is possible that the kid is the same creature as the outsider from the outsider? Uh, the thing that makes me, that made me think of this was how he killed his fellow inmate via giving him late stage cancer overnight, which is something he did in, well, not he, but something the outsider did in the book, the outsider. And we know that, uh, Henry originally, prior to the show's beginning, came from Texas to come back home, and Texas is where The Outsider takes place. Um, I just want to put that out there in case it ends up being a possibility. If not, well, at least I tried. Um, so let me know what you think. Send it to to my Twitter, at Melmoy, so we don't spoil Mr. Kregers because he has not read The Outsider yet, though he is caught up with Castle Rock, and we can see what happens. Um, but yeah, these are... Oh, These are the theories, kids. Let me know. I told them to let me know, not you. Okay. So, Good. Yeah. Yes. Please don't spoil me. Yeah. I mean, well, and then my thing with The Outsider, which I, I've definitely mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was on the last episode or the one before, was that I was I was about to dive right in mm. when I bought it because... You did you know, for my thing, yeah. I want to I own everything Stephen King has ever read, so whenever a new book comes out, I, I, I just kind of I blind buy it um and so I bought I had the outsider and then I was I read a non-spoilery review where they were talking about um there's a character in the outsider that I guess was in the Bill Hodges trilogy the Mr. Mercedes trilogy and while it's not I guess it wasn't super necessary to know who they were they said it it added to the effect after you said that me out yeah and now I'm like okay i'm gonna read the trilogy first and then i'll read the no outside. yeah no after you said that i was like that makes a ton of sense because there was this whole bit and character and situation that i was like i don't know clearly this is something that i don't know and then like i looked it up and i was like oh yeah that would have made more sense if i like knew who the fuck that was <laughs> 
if I knew what the hell was going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I liked it. It didn't ruin anything for me, but I was like, clearly there's more story here than what I'm getting. I just thought it was Stephen King being Stephen King. You know, yeah. like he gives like a ton of backstory to someone and then just doesn't give it all to you. He loves him some backstory, doesn't he? Does. he? That's entirely the stand. You don't even, the plague doesn't even happen for like the first 300 pages. Yeah. Um, but he does it in a way, like so many writers would fuck that up. He does it in a way where it's not boring or frustrating. Like, yeah. It's. No, I wanted to keep reading. Yeah. Um,. I oh, love the stand. The stand is so good. I would hazard to say so that so far the stand is my favorite of the things of his I've read. That being said, I haven't oh, finished yeah. the Dark Tower, and I feel like <laughs> ultimately that thing altogether I will consider like my fave. I also have told myself I'm going to after I we get through Halloween and we get through my reading list, I'm going to finally read it at mm. least before chapter two comes out next year, um, which I'm excited about. I also I have would a copy of. We'll go ahead. We'll I'm going to recommend. I have this weird thing, though, where, like, I really like to read books in the time of year in which they take place. So summer. I was thinking that. So I would recommend reading it in the summer if you're willing to wait that long. But it's I had, obviously. No, I had the same thought. I had the same thought. My thing was, I was like, oh, I could read it over the winter, but I was like, that's completely opposite to, like, when the fuck it takes place. Yeah. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens. At the very least, I'll buy it, and then if it, it sits on my shelf till summer, then so be it, but at least I have it. Then it um, is what it is. Yeah. So, okay, so you, so you think um, The Stand is your favorite. Wait, did you, did you name everything you've read from him? Um... I'm trying to think because I did get some stuff from the library because I was just looking at my shelf. Yeah. But as you name things, I would probably be like, oh, yeah. That, oh, Misery. Oh, misery, yeah, you've read so, Misery. Oh, my God. Misery, like of the things I've read of his and horror in general, Misery is the one thing that stands out as something that was just truly disturbing. And I think Ooh. because it's the most realistic Oh, like everything is, else, yeah. like obviously Killer Clown is terrifying. Vampires are terrifying. All this stuff is scary, but the idea of like being kidnapped and held hostage in the winter in the middle of the wilderness of Colorado by crazy Kathy Bates. Yeah, that's something else. It's terrifying. And, you know, everyone knows the famous clubbing scene. Uh, it is different in the book. It's I'm going to argue that it's worse in the book. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that. I know the difference. Yeah. There's a big difference between what happens in the movie and what happens in the book. I don't know what they do in the stage show, but misery was something that just truly, truly disturbed me when I read it. Like it was, it was very, very, very good. Not that oh, Stephen misery. King needs me to tell him that, but wow, yeah. yeah. But I've not that. read Misery, but I, I have like I've I've seen the movie. I have like one of those other really vivid memories of the first time I saw Misery. Um, and like, damn, right? Yeah, no, it's, damn. it it was, oh my God, it's so, and it doesn't even end, like it just, it, it, it doesn't end, like as you're reading through it, every time you think, okay, this is the end, and then there's like a whole other chapter, and then you think, this is the end, and it just keeps, there's so much misery. There's um, so much misery. And I do have a Which, copy of Gerald's Game that I have not read yet, that I got from the thrift store. Oh, for like yeah, I haven't read Gerald's Game either. Um, 
But the Netflix movie so got I, a lot of accolades. Yeah, no, I almost started watching the Netflix movie. Then I was like, no, you have it sitting on your shelf. You got it for a dollar from the thrift store. Mm-hmm. Fucking read it before you watch the Netflix thing. I know. So I'm going to do that first. That's on my list of things for my, my fall reading list. Gerald's Game is on there right now. It's just mm-hmm. I'm reading on writing because I figured that's that counts as my fall reading. Um, and I'm reading Picnic at Hanging Rock. Ah. <sighs> Yes. Which, oh my god, who would have thought a 19th century novel... And is that the first time, or are you rereading? It's my first time. Oh, yeah. I reread it before, um, or once we found out the Amazon show was happening. (laughs) As it was happening. Um, And and I I had forgotten so much of how good it is. Well, no, it's so interesting, because I was reading it, and I was like, wow, like, why is this a fucking page-turner? It came out in the 19th fucking 20th century, like, the beginning, like, 1900. Like, why do I not want to put this down? Um, also I was thinking to myself last night because I got to the part where they were like, oh, Miranda is a Botticelli angel. And I was like, Miranda's okay. <laughs> Calm the fuck down, first of all. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I will work through, and I'm actually blogging a little bit about my my fall reading list on my, on my website. I have up, the first okay. thing I read was Night Film. Um, so I just uh, blog up about that. Really? The second thing I read was House of Seven Gables. I will be going to the House of Seven Gables in two weeks. Ooh. Um, I I heard a really... Oh, Lore. Lore has a really good podcast about the House of Seven Gables. Nice. A really good episode. Maybe I'll listen to that as a companion piece. You're a Lore listener out there. I need shit to listen to at work. Um, But yeah, so Gerald's Game is on my list. I will be blogging about that when I read it. Um, I do want to get to... I have a copy of Wolves of the Callow. But I just, I'm afraid to start something so big and, like, ruin my, my trajectory here because I'm working up to being able to read the Hocus Pocus novel in October. <laughs> um, you got it totally planned out. Yeah, no, I do. But, um... I yeah. have I have vague, I'm, um, like, things... I, I'm slowly assembling my fall, um, which fall to me is synonymous with Halloween yeah. and spooky reading. Well, that's why which... I was like, I'm going to start in August because August is pre-fall. <laughs> see I'm waiting until September 1st okay. which we're almost yeah. there I'm trying to squeeze in the last of my summer reads before I switch over to my spooky reads but it's difficult um, yeah so the thing is about I mean the thing about Wolves of the Kala though is that I think is my favorite mm-hmm novel. And I actually really loved Wizard and Glass. I know a lot of people didn't because, you know, it stopped the momentum. It was an entire flashback, but it was so good. And it told I, such a great story. I agree. I really liked Wizard I and Glass. I think it, so <laughs> far it's my favorite of, well, I really like the Gunslinger too, but like this one was <sighs> really good. See, I feel like I had a weird Dark Tower experience because for me, they got better as they went on. Mm-hmm. And I know a, a lot of people, they're like, I was hooked from the gunslinger. That's the best one. Da, da, da. But I wasn't that impressed. Yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah, for sure. I felt like, and maybe just because it was so vastly different from sort of like what he, what thinking does, right? Mm-hmm. Where I was just like, this doesn't feel like his voice. It feels like someone trying to be like overly writerly. You know what I mean? Like sort mm-hmm. of like guy in your MFA ish. I love that like, 
you're just trying to show me that you know how to write and I don't know that it's working. Like, I just want you to tell me a good story. And I didn't hate it, but I sort of was kind of, when I was done with Gunslinger, I was like, really? This is what all the fuss is about? Mm -hmm. And as I kept going, like drawing of the three definitely picked it up for me. Yeah, that was so good. Yeah. And, and Wastelands, was I was like, oh, things are cooking now. And then now we're cooking with gas. Now we're cooking with gas. Suddenly I'm my father. Okay. <laughs> I say that all the I said that today at work. Did you? To somebody, because we sent some email. And, no, you know what it was? Is we figured out that we wanted to set up a template because, you know, I do the copywriting. This guy at work does the graphic design. And we were like, we should set up a template where I just input the copy and then I hand it to you so we don't have to have this fucking back and forth where it's like well I thought it would go here and it would be the headline and then I literally said to him I was like now we're cooking with gas and then I went now to the bathroom <laughs> gone gone no yeah so just they just kept getting better I really like I said we, I really loved Wizard and Glass Wolves of the Kala like blew me away I was still fucking invested in that um and then you know finishing out with Song of Susanna and the dark tower for the last one. Just, I, I, I hope that you haven't been spoiled, right? On the only any- thing that I know about the dark tower as a whole is that it ends the way it begins. Okay. That which, both is and isn't, which is essential. something that I like kind of expect to, right? Is that like, Oh, like it's, I've also seen the movie, the dark tower. I have not. Um, I'm afraid to watch it. I didn't hate it, if only because I a Idris Elba has ruined for me the possibility of anyone ever playing Roland, Roland ever again. It has to be Idris Elba, or no one at all. Like that is the most perfect casting I think I've ever seen in my life. Matthew McConaughey, I surprisingly did not hate as the Man in Black. Yeah, I heard he was. I heard he was good. Um, but they did a good job of embracing the spirit of it and embracing the spirit of like just the macroverse in general because it makes references to more than just books in the Dark Tower right. series. Um, well, and that's sort of like, right, like the Dark Tower is his magnum opus. Yeah. I mean, he has said it, others have said it, and it's through those books where you uncover sort of like the grand scheme, the grand plan, right? Yeah. How all of his books are connected and how they all take place in the same universe. Yeah. Um, Cause people have been like, well, he makes references and he names characters here and there, but how is that possible? Because in, you know, the world of the stand, like obviously everything goes to shit and the dark tower tells us how that's possible. Yes. So I guess without spoiling it too much, we can explain a little bit about yeah. for those who 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 only have a, a cursory Stephen King knowledge. Because even if you've seen movies like Stephen King adaptations, most people cut out the Dark Tower stuff from the books that like make reference to it, just because it's yeah. really complicated. I actually watched it with my sister over the weekend because she wanted to watch it and she was like too scared to watch it by herself. I was like, I'll watch it with you. So I came over to her house and she was asking me, she was like, well, how did they kill it? Like, what's going on? And I was like, all right, well, there's two answers to this. <laughs> so it's like, there was like the, there's the way they kill it in the movie and then there's this whole other thing that happens in the books. Um, and I basically gave her the rundown of the macroverse and the fact that, you know, everything takes place in this big same universe. Um... And all these things tie back to, you know, like, 
the Dark Tower and the beams and the yeah. Crimson King and, you know, all this stuff. It's very... And she was like, what? And she was like, what? And I was like, they beat the shit out of him. That's... There you go. Um, but, uh, yeah. So it was... It, it's very... I love it because it's very Lovecraftian, which I finally started reading, like, mm-hmm. straight actually reading Lovecraft instead of just kind of vaguely studying it. Um, yeah. Which is very... I've, al- I've always been a vague studier. Yeah. I Like, I know enough about Lovecraft to get by. Well, the thing with Mountains of Madness is he spends so long explaining to uh, you the geography of the place. It's like, I get it. It's fucking weird. I I have a very special place in my heart for the movie. Yeah. Well, you know, that's Guillermo del Toro's unmade um, uh, passion project was a remake adaptation of Mountain, At the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. Never, yeah. never. It got picked up, and then it ended up in development hell because it was so fucking expensive. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting that you reference uh, Lovecraft because um, he has said that Lovecraft was a huge motivator for him as a child. Yeah. He wanted to be a, a writer like Lovecraft. He wanted to be a horror writer. And if, yeah, um, you even look at it in it, Pennywise is totally a Lovecraftian. Like the idea of anything, you look at it and you instantly go crazy is such a Lovecraftian motif. Yes, and it obviously is. the Crimson King is super Lovecraftian. The Crimson King is Lovecraftian. Um, uh, yeah. Maturin, you know, the turtle, all of that. Yeah. So. But yeah, essentially, Stephen King's big old matrix is that (laughs) (laughs) uh, every single or many realities exist on this sort of linchpin that is the Dark Tower. Right. Now, Mr. Crackers is going to have more advanced knowledge of this than me. (laughs) So... I'm going to do my best to not spoil anything for you can, and the I listeners. I can take my headphones out whenever. We can no, do no, it in I, reverse. I think I've got it. Okay. So the Dark Tower is, you use the word linchpin, right? Yes. Yeah. It is the linchpin of all universes, all things, all worlds, and all existences. Same. Same. <laughs> it appears to most eyes, as a dark tower, a stone structure. You don't say. In the midst of a giant field of roses. And it can only be accessed um, in one world. And that's the world of mid-world. I Um, know this. Sometimes referred to (laughs) as all-world or even end-world, which happens to be Roland Deschains of Gilead's world. And so it sits in this field of roses, and it is the cross point of the beams, um, invisible beams that radiate out from the tower and hold up the universe. There are guardians of the beams, the those who are assigned to protect it from uh, various different forces, and there, um, no matter what the tower looks like we're to understand that there are almost infinite levels to the tower, infinite floors and infinite chambers. And on each level and in each room of the tower is a different world and a different 
timeline in that world. And so this is how Stephen King's multiverse exists. His stories, most of them take place on one level of the tower. Or they all take place on one level of the tower. But if there are stories that are slightly different, stories like The Stand in which the world ends, that timeline is the same world, the same level, but just a different room of the tower, if that makes sense. This is very non-Euclidean. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And so the premise of the Dark Tower is that Roland is seeking the tower itself. He's trying to get there. And as his quest goes further and further, we come to understand that um, an antagonistic figure known as the Crimson King um, plans to destroy the tower and bring it, uh, bring it, tumbling down he plans to topple it and in so doing that would rip apart and destroy the known universe uh leaving it to him to recreate it in his own terrible image sounds about right sounds about right and so that's sort of the deal of the dark tower the dark tower and having read all of them It's just, it's so, they're so fucking massive and they're so fucking brilliant and they're so fucking ridiculous and they're so fucking amazing. Yeah, it's literally, it's a fantasy story set that starts out set in freaking what we would assume is a Western world. It turns out, you know, later you realize it's just a a different plane of existence that happens to resemble what we would say is like, oh, that's a California gold rush. Um, It's I love his, I love his, his gunslingers, right? Where they're sort of these like um, medieval Arthurian knight figures, right? Yes. Like yeah, we even like Jedi. We even, yeah, they're like Jedi. There, there, there even is like we learn a lot about this in Wizard and Glass. Like Roland is descended from a figure that they know as Arthur L. It's Arthur. King Arthur. King <laughs> Arthur. Yeah, and. And the guns, these the guns that he bears, they're not just regular guns. They're 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 like a sword. They're like a mythical weapon. And and I love that mythology. Great, it's so unique. I freaking love it. Uh, and it was uh, the the impetus of it was based on the Robert Browning poem "Child Roll into the Dark Tower Came," That's right. um, which has nothing to do with anything else. That happens in the Dark Tower series. Yeah. Except for, like, that line. Right. Um, he got Roland's name and the Dark Tower. And the Dark Tower. I mean, to be fair, that's, like, a nonsense poem anyway. But, yeah. So that's just, you know, like, it's such a, like, a, you know, because it's like, okay, it's a Western, but it's also, like, a crazy multidimensional fantasy but it's also horror and it's great because if you right. you watch enough and you read enough Stephen King the man in black is everywhere yes he's he's Randall Flagg in the stand he's he who walks behind the road he's, he walks around. he's Walter Odin he's Walter Odin and, he, and he's Walter Paddock yes he's everyone you hate he's everyone you hate he's this terrible Terrible villain. He's probably featured most prominently in the stand as Randall Flagg, but he also shows up in Eyes of the Dragon, mm-hmm. uh, Children of the Corn. You know, his reference and his influence is, is scattered throughout. Um, it, Pennywise, actually, is um, a minion 
of the Crimson Kings. Isn't he supposedly an offspring of the Crimson King? That's like a theory. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and that comes about because of something that comes up in uh, book six, Song of Susanna. All right, we'll get there when we get there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, and that the sort of... um, there's this implication that all of these evil forces that exist in Stephen King's various novels um, flow back to one primary source of evil, that source being the Crimson King. Fuck that guy. Who, you know, nominally at the very least sounds very much based on the King in Yellow from Lovecraftian um, cycles, mythos, whatever you want to call them. Um, who is definitely feel like that was an influence. Haster, the king in yellow, um, is a being in in the Lovecraftian universe. He's not a super terrible dude. It's just like I said, it's like nominally, I feel like that's kind of the uh, the place where the Crimson King gets pulled from. Um, yeah, I will say the design of the tower in the Dark Tower film was nuts. It, I mean, even from the, the trailers, it looked yeah. wild. Well, there was this great art book that came out, too, that was like Art of the Dark Tower. Um, yeah. And it was good. It was great. I, I busted through it. But um, they're also planning like a, a TV show. That's right. Follow up, which I hope they go through with, because I do think that the Dark Tower film had a ton of promise to it. Like, I honestly, I did not hate it. I would yeah. watch it again. Um, it was nothing compared to the books so yeah, far. Yeah, they're it so was, good. It was very, it was enjoyable, and I think it like captured a lot of the spirit of it. Uh, and I think it's worth at least, you know, attempting to to do further. Well, and the Dark Tower is so vast and complicated and intricate, especially as the series goes on, where it's just like this story does deserve justice on. In some screen fashion. but to do that i feel like it has to be television it has to be serialized yeah you need you need the room to uh to tell that story exactly it's exactly like song of ice and fire you couldn't yeah. do those you couldn't do that story in a film or even several films it has to be a a television show um in order for us to get everything that's going on there especially as dark tower goes on and we move towards the end of um, the quest and the story and and the, all the revelations that go therein. Yeah. Um, so let's, so fucking like Stephen King on TV though. Yeah. Fucking everywhere these days. No, I was thinking that it was like, there's been, as there has also been a half a sans with <laughs> Anne Hathaway, completely unrelated. <laughs> but equally as important to me there's been this like super like people are really into Stephen King adaptations right now Yeah, you know I think it kind of started because like It and the Dark Tower came out around the same time and then I always fuck it up 11, 22, 63 is, goes on Netflix around the same time Gerald's Game goes up on Netflix um, mm-hmm. you know all this stuff kind of goes up around the same time last fall so it was like a Stephen King like <laughs> 1922. 1922. Which is yes, one of the novellas on from Full Dark No Stars. That also, was on Netflix. Yeah, also on Netflix. And it just kind of all goes up at once. And it's like, oh, yeah, Stephen King. And then Castle Rock goes up We've on got Castle Rock right now. We've got It. It. Oh, my God. 
it. I could, I could, I literally was telling Mr. Craigers the other day, I was like, I honestly think at this point, this new version of it might be in my top five favorite horror films. It's so good. It's, it's incredible. And it was funny because my sister, she tried watching it by herself and she couldn't get past the point. She was like, I can't watch past a certain part. And I was like, all right, well, what is it? And she was like, when, um, the kid, the, what's his name? Um, Mike, when Mike, uh, goes to deliver the butchered meat and the hands come out of the the door and i was like i was like that's 20 minutes into the movie (laughs) and she was like yes i can't get past it so i was like all right i'll watch it with you and i told her i was like past a certain point it's just gonna be a really fun movie like you just got to get past the initial fact that yeah it's super fucking creepy and it's a little bit disturbing at times but it's fun it's like stranger things like stranger things wouldn't exist if it hadn't existed first because the duffer brothers pay huge homage to it yeah huge and that's what my, my sister was asking me about it she was like yeah this is a very stranger things and i was like no stranger things is very it because this was the first thing to kind of do something like that i mean obviously it owes itself to the scooby gang and you could you know go on and on and on but you know the and it you know it helps that finn wolford is also in in it He's but, awesome. but yeah. um you know, I was like, yeah, no, this is fun. And, you know, she was even saying to me, too, when they got to the spitting scene, she was like, did Stephen King do Stand By Me? And I was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another great point, right? Like, no one does nostalgia like Stephen King. Yeah. And he does it in a way where, I mean, I I was not fucking around in uh the 19 i was not a kid in the 1950s i didn't but know where that was gonna end i was like where were you not fucking around? when you know the um the lucky seven from it are kids and when um the boy is from stand by me which was written as the body yeah uh, our kids but when you read those two stories or watch those two movies you become so like nostalgic i guess i can't come up with another word for for your childhood like the idea of childhood like regardless of when he writes it in or when it gets set in you were there you've you've done that yeah you've done that the the idea of childhood the idea of sort of figuring things out as you grow up the idea of innocence lost um that all he he communicates that so so well um I mean, Stand By Me is a near perfect movie. I love it. And it's one of those movies where if I'm like not in a good place or having a really bad day, I can watch that and like you feel like there's a warm blanket around you, you know? No, like it's such a summer movie, but it's like I want to watch it on a perfect summer, a fucking afternoon where it's like, you know what? I just want to chill. It's an afternoon. I want to watch Stand By. I want to watch these kids go find a body. Because I yeah. also too want to go find a body. Well, and I was I was thinking about this watching it with my sister because you know like she got you know when they're playing in the quarry and you know they're swimming around it. I remember my mom telling me stories about how she used to go play in a quarry when she was a kid, which would have been you know around the time that the kids around the same time it were originally kids back in the you know the olden days right from the book yeah because it was it's changed in both the miniseries and the movie. yeah they keep updating it so that the present version of it is them as adults yeah um 
But yeah, and I was thinking to myself, because, and I've told this story to Mr. Craigers, and I might have told it to you guys before, like, when I was a kid, um, we grew up in this neighborhood that was, like, right on the edge of the woods, and A, when I was, in one of the first stories Stephen King tells in On Writing is about how he, like, wiped his ass with, um poison ivy when he was playing in the woods with his brother like he went to go pee and he was like oh use some leaves and he just wipes and like he's covered in poison ivy from like freaking dong to to neck (laughs) well i never did that like i did get poison ivy constantly when i was a kid because we used to play in the woods like i used to go in the woods and i got covered in poison ivy and i had you know the the gross little bumps and stuff and i remember at one point i actually had one it was a stripe across my arm, but I kept itching it so much that it started to curl around my arm like it was like a fucking oh, no. like a fucking bracelet. Like it was so bad. You made it spread. Yeah, it was so yeah. bad. But I was like, I remember having poison ivy because we used to play in the woods, but we used to play this game called Vampire. Yeah. Where basically we would that. we would hang on to the street sign that would be home base. Somebody would go off into the woods to hide. And we'd count to midnight and then go off in mass and, you know, try and find the vampire and like, you know, like and play kickball in the street and chase yeah. down the ice cream truck. Like, you know, all these things, you know, and it's so interesting with his his Lovecraftian influence because of his, you know, when you've got that scene with what's his face, fucking Patrick um, chasing down um, Ben and he goes, you know, and he goes into the tunnel and he's like, where are you? And it's yeah. like. In my mind, it was like, that's like the biggest Lovecraftian type thing, because it's like such a thing of cosmicism, right? The idea that there's like a bigger world that that you can't perceive or understand or have control over, because I was like, here's this like thing so on the ground and so like, yes, like we all knew bullies, we all knew people who were a little bit of pyros, we all knew the troubled kids and that sort of thing, and that's going on, but also there's like a fucking like million-year-old demon hiding in that sewer that's yeah. going on in the background of like this very mundane normal thing. Right. Well, that's, and that's what he does so well with, with what he does, right? It's, he's, it's ordinary people. It's relatable people confronted by the uncanny, yeah. the supernatural, the paranormal. And I think that's why his peel, his, his stories are, are so appealing and so well-received and consumed, it's because he writes for the everyman, mm-hmm. right? He writes, like, like, tr- like true, like, he's, his characters are blue-collar America. Yeah. You know? And, we, and we, we all see ourselves in those characters, and then he puts them into these unheimlich situations, <laughs> and it... it it heightens the terror because it's us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, even in misery, you know, like that is a very much, you know, a very normal thing. But Ka is mentioned briefly in misery, you know, like they're yeah. it's still part of this big universe. There's still other things going on. It just so happens that, you know, fucking Andy's she's <laughs> insane without any influence from Crimson King, Man in Black. They're not a part of this at all. She's just She just is. And that's what makes her a credibly compelling villain. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> there's these two sides to it. And they blend so perfectly because it is a perfect example of the combination of, you know, the epicness of the Dark Tower and, like, the complete, like, 
I'm going to go chase the fucking ice cream truck because I, I want me a cookies and cream. Yeah. With the, mm-hmm. with the little wooden spoon that you would use to eat it out of the cup. Oh, wow. That's the, yeah. That's the one I always used to get. Damn um, right. Yeah. And, you know, like, he, he blends those so well because, you know, he... Because I, I guess it's because he, like, trusts the audience enough, right, to, like, understand, like, you know, we all want there to be this bigger world, so what if there is? Like, in yeah. these stories, and that's the idea. And uh, it, it comes across so well in, in it, and it comes across in other things, too. I mean, if you look at The Stand, everyone's got fucking lives before, you know, the apocalypse rains down on them. Um, but, you know, it's it's just, like, that fun nostalgia. Like, I, I, I will never not, if you ask me to watch it, I will always watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, either Either or. Yeah. And remember that that day we were like, we're going to watch it and then we're going to nap through the second half of it when they're adults. This is less interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we, we watched the first half of it and then um, we put the second DVD in for when they're adults and then immediately went to bed. Immediately <sighs> napped out. We're pretty good at that. Yeah, we are. Um, um. No, but it's true. And it's, you know, I love the idea that always psychos through with King stuff of sort of as terrifying and as um, powerful as these otherworldly threats can be, they can like, they can always be defeated by like friendship Mm -hmm. and a group of people sticking together and just like relying on a quartet on their bond and their love for each other and fuck all the rest, you know, like, There's something so appealing and wonderful about that. And that even in his bleakest of stories, because he can get bleak. Oh my God. Listen, misery. I will. I don't even want to rewatch the movie. (laughs) I mean, the movie is the books works. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But you know what I'm saying? Like, I love that. Yeah. Um, no, and like that's that they make that point in it too, where you know in the newest one, you know Bev says like you know the first time they face it in the house and they all run out and Bev's like, no, the reason we're still alive is because we were together when we faced it. Yeah. Um, and it's just like ah, oh, and then at the end they like beat the shit out of it together. It's great. <sighs> For now. Um. Yeah. No. Well, my favorite line of anything ever is gonna have to be, and now. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Fucking clown. Yeah, no, but that's it, right? Like, because he pushes this idea of, like, togetherness and, like, specifically, like, groups of people who are meant to, to sort of be together and find each other. Like, he calls them a quartet, which is, like, a group of people bound by, by ka, which is, like, the, the term sort of for fate. destiny and energy yeah. and stuff. So it's like, you know, you've got the quartet from the gunslinger and then people have like heavily theorized that the kids from it are a quartet. And it's like, oh, you have your own quartets out in the world. Yeah. And you think about like, you know, like your crew and you're like, yeah, that's my fucking quartet. Like we can fucking do it. It's your squad, yo. We got this. It's squad goals. Stephen King has invented squad goals. Yes. And we're the first to suss that out. Yes. I'm claiming that right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm claiming that Stephen King invented. Put that on Urban Dictionary. 
originated with Stephen King. Stephen King. You could you could argue that it originated in his second novel, since the first references to the Dark Tower go all the way back to Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Wait till you read Wolves of the Kala. I'm going to say right now, I know for a fact that Stephen King appears as a character in Wolves of the Kala. Uh, you're, you're a little bit early. I, I know he that he, appear. at some point in yeah. the series, appears but, as a character. Someone someone else appears in Wolves of the Kala, and it's fucking incredible. I'm excited. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Um... And so, so here's the thing, though. So, and maybe this is, like, really funny because I sort of start, like, my Stephen King journey started on screen and didn't, get, and didn't get to the page until later. But for as many successes as I feel like his stories have had being adapted to film, there have been a lot, just as many failures, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yes, let's let's discuss the big Achilles heel of Stephen King that we all know and we all wait for when we pick up a book or watch a movie. <laughs> and that is, after two hours of watching a movie, we're about a week and a half, two weeks of reading a book, we get to like the last fifty pages. Yeah. And it all kind of crumbles. What is that, man? I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it, and it's interesting because looking at his philosophy where he, he talks about he starts with premise and then gets into character. Like, I wonder if that's part of it, is that he focuses so much on the what if. Right, because he's a notorious, um, they call it gardening, as like a type of writer, right? Yeah. He doesn't plot almost ever. He just kind of starts with his ideas and sees what happens. Yeah. The one he did, apparently, he like super plotted out Insomnia, which I haven't read. I haven't read that either, so I can't Um, speak to it. And evidently has a major connection to the Dark Tower. Um, But it also gets shit on a lot. So we were like, well, this is what happens when he plans things. And I'm like, yeah, but when he doesn't plan things. You get the ending to The Shining. (laughs) Yeah, we get some not great endings. And this has been a thing I have said, this Mel has said, many, many people. We're not the first to say it. Is that Stephen King has trouble with endings. Or some people just go ham and they say, Stephen King can't write endings. I would argue that he can. It's just sometimes when they're not good, they're really not good. And most of the time, they're just okay. Yeah. I think he just... He's amazing at building tension, obviously, right? Yeah. But sometimes that just comes back to haunt him because it's such great tension and there's no payoff. Yeah, no, it's like, how do you how do you finish... Like, he gets so into a story and builds it up so well that it's like, there's no conceivable way you could end this. Right. Like, there's and then no way like, you can end this that of- works. It's kind of like he realizes that and then he's like, well, then I'm just going to fucking, we'll wrap it up. Yeah. I'm like, as much as I love the stand, the ending is a literal hand of God. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, and I do. And it's interesting because the entire title of the book is based on the last, like, 150 pages. (laughs) So it is unfortunate that it happens the way it happens. And it is literally, like, I mean, to give him credit, it's like, okay, he does build it up earlier on. Like, you see what's-his-face crazy guy doing his, I forget his name. The trash can man. Trash can man. Um, You know, doing his thing. So it's like, okay, like, the seeds are there, but it's like just in the middle of the Vegas strip like there's an explosion (laughs) like like a lot of it's a lot of things happening at once it's a lot of things happening at once and I think it's because I mean obviously because he's not a plotter but also just because he loves him some character building yeah and he's really good at it Yeah, no, The Stand, I think, is such a great example of that because you literally spend the first 300 pages just with the various characters who end up forming, like, the final uh, inner group of uh, Mother Abigail's... Abigail? Yeah, Abigail. Abigail. Uh, Mother Abigail's sort of inner circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it really plays into later when, you know, they are in danger, when they are off doing things, when, you know, people die or get sick or get hurt or get pregnant and various things like you care about it at that point because you know you've spent 300 pages with them before even disaster struck so it's like you you believe they are real people who have real lives and i do think that comes across really well in a much more concise manner in the outsider um oh interesting yeah the first chunk of the outsider does a really good job to build up um these people and kind of like the scenes of of their world and it's interesting Mm -hmm. because it takes place in texas which is not a huh a normal spot and that's one of the reasons i think it connects in an unusual setting for him yeah well that's also one of the reasons i think it connects to castle rock because henry deaver came to castle rock from from texas so i think i'm onto something but i'm afraid to tell reddit because reddit's notoriously mean (laughs) they are they will be like fuck you or they'll be like so i have this idea and they'll steal it yeah (laughs) so i'm just gonna keep it to myself you've all heard it Um, (laughs) you've put it out there and so if it's true you know i came up with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's interesting and yeah so thinking about like like king stories like taken from page to screen mm-hmm. and i feel like it's always a coin toss whether it's going to whether they're going to succeed or not and then like i'm so i'm thinking of the ones that like are regarded as great novels and as great films right mm-hmm. i'm thinking of carrie yes i'm thinking of the shining um, the Dead Zone. Okay. Christine. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. Pet Cemetery. I that's on my that's on my fall reading list. Yeah. I'm really excited. I've seen the I've first five minutes it. of Pet I've Cemetery. Seen the movie a ton, and they're remaking it, which is exciting. I've seen the first five minutes. <laughs> oh also, they make a Pet Cemetery joke in Justice League. <laughs> cemetery is creepy they bring superman back to life and they're like is it gonna be like superman or like a pet cemetery situation (laughs) (laughs) i like the the family guy one and he's like uh i don't remember what the setup is but peter's like well maybe i'll bury him in the pet cemetery and then it's like he's burying whoever it is and the person like jumps up from the ground and they're like ah and the peter's like ah 
Like a barbarian or a regular cemetery. I do love Family Guy's little Stephen King episode. They have a yeah. Oh, oh the actual episode. Yeah. yeah. I'm your biggest fan. I'm your biggest fan. Good. They, biggest do, fan. They, do, what, they do Shawshank. They do Shawshank. They do Stand by Me. They do Misery. Do they do a fourth one? It might be those three, but I feel like there might have been a fourth one. That's a solid trio. Yeah. Stewie as Annie. And Stewie and Peter Annie. as... What's his face? I'm your biggest fan. I'm your, or not Peter, it's Brian. Brian is, uh, yeah, is Paul. Yeah. And it's funny because in Stand By Me, they just do teeny versions of Peter and Quagmire yes. and everyone. But for some reason, Joe's still in a wheelchair. Yeah, well, he gets he um what, during, when they do the train scene, he gets run over yeah. by the train that he's in the wheelchair, and then he gets run over by a second train because yeah. I love that. And he's like, "What an oddly clustered train schedule." Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, I love that say. though because they they draw them in the same costumes yeah. as the kids in the movie. It's so good. What a good a good trio. Um, God, oh, I had such a crush on River Phoenix. Growing up watching Stand By Me. Adorable. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, indeed. Uh, adaptations, you were saying, Adaptation, though. Yeah, so, so, sorry, I got distracted. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm just kind of thinking, like, so these are the really great ones, right? Like, sort of great King adaptations that people say, like, in their own right, are great horror films, you know? But... Well, maybe aside from Carrie. But, like, so... No, no, no. What I'm about to say, I'm sorry. Not okay. that Carrie is... <laughs> Carrie, Carrie is truly... I was like, that the, was a 180 on what you just said about No, Carrie, Carrie is one of the, the ten greatest horror movies ever made. Um, is that... They're so... They're so different, I feel like, from their source material. Mm. because because they have like all of the all of these things like the, the, the things they have in common is that they're they were all directed and made by like really talented directors with really specific voices right like yeah Ryan De Palma did Carrie Kubrick obviously did The Shining John Carpenter did Christine we have Cronenberg doing The Dead Zone and they're bringing they brought their own style to the story and sort of made it work or made it different. Like obviously the film version of the shining is very different from the novel. And I'm kind of wondering, is this why like King adaptations generally fail? Because like you have all these competing voices and when they're doing their own thing, they sort of like drown out King's tone. It's interesting because I think the greatest example of that is the shining, which is, Interesting yeah. because it's considered, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. Of all time. But King hates it. And it's so different tonally from the book because Kubrick took this and, and saw something completely different in it and created this entirely different um, lens on the on the the story. And it's like, I do have to separate them and think of them as two separate things. Like there's the shining, the book, which is telling one story and then the shining, the movie, which is something completely different Very and bonkers. Different. And then even if you add in there, Stephen King's, he had a huge hand in the miniseries version of the shining and you can really see it. Yeah. And it almost suffers because of that. Cause he tries to, you know, he forces on it 
not even forces because it's his own story, but he makes sure it's very, you know, it is very much in the tone of, of um, what was going on in The Shining because Shining is probably the great ex example of the fact that King also writes a lot of self inserts. Yeah. And sometimes he doesn't realize it. And then sometimes I think he does it as a kind of catharsis, like the character from Misery, he is admitted, you know, that the point of that was that he wrote Eye of the Dragon and everyone was like shitting on it because they wanted more of the same stuff and they didn't want a fantasy story. And he felt like he was being trapped by his fans um, yeah. who, who wanted what they wanted and he wasn't allowed to break out of it. You know, The Shining, the character is literally a former teacher who's also an alcoholic and a writer. Like that's literally Stephen King. That's it. And who is Jack Torrance, a former English teacher that's an alcoholic writer. Yeah. So, and... Uh, the, the Dark Sil Half. The Dark Half is literally Stephen King in a... And Salem's Lot is this this writer who goes back to his hometown after selling a bestseller, Carrie, mm -hmm. and goes back to his hometown in Maine. Like, Stephen King lots writes himself lots constantly. Lots of writers, lots of English teachers. Lots of, yeah. And he writes himself constantly, which is fine. But it's like, I think part of why there's such a disconnect when people adapt his work, because they, you know, these, everyone wants to put themselves in the story and everyone kind of makes sure. it a mirror of themselves. Like Kubrick's version of The Shining is a Kubrick version of The Shining. It's far from what Stephen King saw it as, which to him was kind of a redemptive story in his mind. A very personal story, yeah. Um, so I do think that's part of why a lot of these things kind of not even fail some of them fail but it's like the shining it's like it's hard to say it failed because it's like as a film it's one of the greatest films of all time but it's a Stephen yeah. King adaptation it's so off the mark right yeah I guess I'm thinking about more like um like Dreamcatcher Dreamcatcher I Which still want to read Dreamcatchers yeah. I know that there's a yeah. there's a reference to it in Dreamcatchers yeah and and like some of the other ones you know what I mean like but it was interesting you were saying about um Oh, fuck, did I? I think I lost the thought. Dark Tower? No. Shining. For the, the Shining. Oh, just thinking about, like, what King has talked about not liking about it. Um, and a couple things was that, you know, he... His, his you know, the novel, King's Shining, is... It's a straight-up ghost story, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And... But in Kubrick's film, it's this question throughout. It's what's really happening. Yeah. Because um, if you read uh, that documentary on Netflix as well, it's such a great companion. Yeah, Room 237. Yeah. Because it points out all the, the things that you didn't realize were making you unsettled about The Shining that like did unsettle you, but you didn't realize, oh, it's because of this. Yes. Like in the geography problems of the hotel. The geography problems. That's my favorite from that documentary. Yeah. Um, that the, you know, like the, the window in Ullman's office. Yeah, the window, window and the, the stairs suddenly he jumps Danny the on the train. Yeah. yeah. He's on the first floor when we know he's on the second floor. And, and then he jumps down the floor. Possible. Um, and the layout with like the kitchen and stuff. That's not what we saw before. Um, that's all really brilliant. Um, but but then I know he also doesn't like how he feels in Kubrick's film, Jack is already unhinged yeah. and like rather than being driven to a dark place by his alcoholism and and ghosts in the hotel, 
Um, and then the other thing that he really doesn't like is yeah, his story, the novel, ends in fire and the film ends in ice. Yeah, and it's like, I can see that too, right? Because it's like the idea in King's version, I say King's version, like it's I, I know, it's a pre-existing story. Yeah, no, in, in the original version that Stephen King writes, the idea is that, you know, like, ghosts and the supernatural take the place of the alcoholism at a certain point. They become a metaphor for this disease and this affliction that he has. Whereas in Kubrick's version, there's something already wrong with Jack by the time he gets there. And you can argue even in the book there is because, you you know, you find yeah. out that he, he was going through some stuff. He beat up a kid at school. He broke Danny's arm. Like, clearly there was something going on before you get to the hotel and the hotel just exacerbates it. But I do see that in Kubrick's version, it's very much just something is wrong with this family in a very different way than I think what this sort of domestic problems that Stephen King was trying to portray as opposed to just the psychotic problems. And yeah. we know that, you know, uh, Kubrick just completely made life miserable for, um, what's her name? Michelle Duvall. Yeah. Um, and you know, made life terrible for her and it comes across in her portrayal. Like there's almost nothing likable about the, the way she looks or acts on screen throughout that entire movie. Whereas in the book, like she's kind of this figure of like comfort for you because she seems to be the only person who's not going through something fucking bizarre in, in in the hotel and she's like cooking dinner and like you know being the voice of reason um so yeah I mean it's two different things that you have to separate in your brain because it's like I love Kubrick's version I think it's a great movie especially now that I'm not eight years oh, old oh yeah and <laughs> you know watching and watching that terrifying maze and watching that terrifying maze and having that being my only knowledge of the film um, but I also, having read the book, you know, really love the book and, and, you know, the, the mood of the book. So, yeah, I also think that you and I are weird King fans in that sense, in that we love both. Yeah. And we love both for what they are. Well, um, you know what? The, uh, the only other time that I have ever said out that I love both of the, well, that's a lie. There's two other times in my life that I have said, I love both things equally, but separately. And the other time is Wicked, with Wicked the book oh, and Wicked the musical, because they are yeah. two very different things. Super different. And the other time is Phantom of the Opera the book and Phantom of the Opera the musical. Mm. Where I've been like, these are separate, separate things. Yeah. They're separate entities. I definitely feel like The Shining falls into that category, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's because they're so vastly different to me that I am able to appreciate each of them for what they are. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, they're just, they're trying to say two different things. And it's like, I can understand the frustration of Stephen King, for sure, because this is the, the greatest adaptation of your work, besides maybe Shawshank Redemption. Mm. And, you know, this is, it's so different than how you envisioned it. Like, I can understand that being so frustrating. So you bringing that up, what do you make of the fact that... um in terms of adaptations, mm -hmm. like King's most revered ones aren't horror. Like, so, so I'm thinking of like, if you're talking about Stephen King uh, adapted films, mm -hmm. the greatest ones, the top three that people are going to give you are Shawshank, Stand By Me, mm -hmm. and The Green Mile. Yes, the green mile. So, fun 
side about the Green Mile is I was just this major used bookstore and they had Green Mile books like four through six. And I was really <laughs> pissed. Because <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do with that? What the fuck? <laughs> I'm mad. But, but you know, like, I think like, that that's... Who just buys one through three and doesn't buy the rest? Like, Well, some asshole. Yeah. But yes, no, you're right, though, right? Because it's like... And it was funny that my sister brought that up because I was actually surprised that she, like, thought in her head that Stephen King did Stand By Me because while it's macabre, like, it's not really something you'd associate with, you know, the mainstream idea of Stephen King because it's more of the, you know, nostalgia kind of gothic-ish story, but it's not Stephen King the way that Right, well, and that's the thing, right? Like, so the body was first written to be included in... um in a book of his called Different Seasons, yes. uh, which is four novellas. Uh, none of them are horror. Some of them get close, but th- it's not outright, that he wrote in response to critics that he couldn't write anything other than horror. Yes. He was basically like, fuck you, yes, I can. And so the four novellas were um, Shawshank Redemption, um, The Body, now Stand By Me, um, Apt Pupil, hmm. which is probably the closest to horror and really creepy, um, and uh, a novella called, um, oh, fuck, I can't remember. It's the only one that hasn't been made into a film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so it was, yeah, so it was like this conscious effort of his to prove that he can write um, something other than straight horror. And then here we are now where two of those novellas their film adaptations are considered some of the greatest of all time. Yeah. Shawshank and Stand By Me. And kids having, you know, worked last year during summer reading, a ton of people were requiring kids to read different seasons. Oh, really? As part of their summer reading, yeah. Interesting. It was a a huge summer reading thing because people would come up to me and they'd be like, well, I'm looking for Stephen King. And I'd be like, stop. And I'd go get them different seasons and just hand it to them and be like, go away. (laughs) get out um it was that and on writing but it was um different Mm. seasons more than anything else they were they were it was required reading yeah i mean there's it's great i finally read it for the first time very very recently i'm gonna read it but i want to finish night shift first because that was like his first collection of short stories yes that was first yeah it's interesting because i i finished most recently the one that became the stand and it's funny how a fucking three-page short story literally it's so short well, they're, they're like on the beach. Yeah, Is it's it the, literally yeah, it's like yeah. a four-page max short story turns into like an eleven hundred page novel. But you know, Stephen yeah. King. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. Stephen King. Yeah, no. But I, like, just to get back to it, like, I think it's so interesting that those are the ones that are considered the best adaptations. And I don't know if that's just like the whole the larger thing of. Um, people sort of not taking horror seriously or or not looking at horror critically unless you are kind of like a genre enthusiast like us um because i mean i I don't know like you you've got carrie like that's a brilliantly made film so this is my thing because i was actually reading recently some of the comments that were made when stephen king won the national book award 
a few that years was ago. Very controversial. Yeah, a ton of people were like bitching about it because they were like, "Well, what the fuck is this? Like, why is this mainstream horror writer like is you know we've all everything's gone to shit? Like, this is t like basically they took it as like a sign that the novel was dead and literature was dead and all this other stuff. If this, you know, mainstream paperback horror writer is winning the National Book Award and stuff, and people were saying like, "Calm the fuck down!" Like. You know, you have to look past genre at a certain point. And I was thinking about this with It. Like, It is such an amazing story about loss of innocence and nostalgia and all this other stuff that, you know, isn't degraded by the fact that it has a fucking killer clown in it because he represents something more than just a killer clown running around. Like, the thing is that people don't realize is, you know, horror and NPR did such a great piece on this. It was like a month ago, I think, at this point. They put out this great article about how you need horror basically to, to contextualize your world because that's the that's the point of it, right? Is that you can you can put these things in boxes by creating these metaphors of of scary things, and they reference Stephen King, they reference the witch, <sighs> and yeah. like all these. And the reason that horror exists is so that you can basically make your world make sense. It's kind of like this very dark version of a modern fairy tale. It's kind of like um, that thing, sort of like that theory and that argument, right? Where they like they say people who are into horror are more well adjusted than other people mm -hmm. because you face the dark possibilities and the dark realities of the world around you, and you find ways to deal and cope with that, yeah. and still live your life. Yeah, no, and that's like I think the thing that Stephen King, you know, because Stephen King's been through some shit, some of it of his own making, some of it's just like that's the way life works out. Is that, you know, you have these sort of you know personal demons and you turn them into actual demons in this story because then they become something tangible that you can you know you can punch. That's why he has said. Did you see that one interview with him where he was like he has, he never has nightmares. He was saying he like the last time he had a nightmare was like when he was in college because he writes his nightmares down and he sends them out to all of us. So you remember when I texted you like two days ago about how I was like, you know, when you fucking hate that you, you were your 20,000 words into something. And then yeah. you the other day, it's because I had a fucking nightmare. And I was like, this is a story. This is a story. Um, so hey, I, yeah. I wrote a little bit of it down for future reference. Cause it's not quite there yet, but yeah, yeah but no, like, yeah, no, like, and that's the thing. And I'll give you a little snippet. Um, this is actually, I'm going to consider this part two of a long-standing nightmare that I've had. Is that I have a... All got him. This has got a, this has got a name, but I have a, a pretty substantial fear of thunder. Um, that's my cat. Um, I, cat loves podcasting. He does. He's into it. He's saying you're being loud. Um, I don't do well with thunder. I'm 25 years old thunder just freaks me out it's always freaked me out um i don't do awesome with it. it it makes me very very anxious and like a it was like three years ago i had this nightmare that i was in my house and there was a thunderstorm outside and the thunder like could talk like it was talking to me and it and i was hiding in my house i looked out the window and i shut the curtain and i was hiding in my house and this big booming voice said i see you Ugh. and i wanted to piss myself i was like 23 years old and you know i wanted to fucking die um, and i woke up and i was like that was horrifying and it stayed in my brain ever since i'm not somebody who really remembers their dreams very well 
But that one stayed in my head because that freaked me out. And just the other night I had this dream. We've had a lot of storms and raining in my area um, all along the East Coast. And I had a dream that I was trapped in a friend's apartment during a torrential downpour thunderstorm. And it was a bunch of us and people I didn't even recognize who were just part of this story going on in this dream were all trapped in this house and we were trying to get out because somebody was in the house and they were trying to get us. Like somebody who didn't belong was also hiding in the house during the thunderstorm and it was all this just was, Ooh, was happening. Yeah, so like all this came together. I woke up and I was like, I have to write this. Like this, I, this need, is I need to deal yeah. with this clearly. So I, I scribbled some of it down. It's like a dark herb version of a monster calls yes yeah right no i just have this thing about thunder i don't know where it comes from or why i just i can't handle it it makes me when i was a kid it freaked me out in the sense that i would hide under things now as an adult it freaks me out in the sense that like i <laughs> like a dog yeah it, it stresses me out a lot like if i know it's going to thunder like i look at the weather and i can see that two days this week it's supposed to be thunderstorms and i'm already stressed out about it because that's just for whatever reason um, so yeah, I scribbled that stuff down because I was like, one day, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put something together here. I don't quite have enough right now to abandon my other projects, um, and start something brand yeah, new. Yeah, but you still gotta. Yeah, so I have a, yeah, no, and I have a running document where I write down all my ideas and scribble down all the, the thinky thoughts. But yeah, like, that's my thing, right? Is that like, I have a fear of thunder and I have had nightmares about it. So it's like, clearly I have to, you know get it out there in some way in a way where you can you know smack it because it's like you can't for the most part like alcoholism you know self-consciousness stress anxiety what have you you can't you know that's not tangible so you have to horror is a way to right. make these things tangible yeah and that's sense. and that's what pennywise represents right he represents fear itself but it's a version of fear that you can evidently... In the physical form, yeah. in the tangible form. You can stab it in the face with your bad luck. Twice. Yeah. In one movie. <laughs> no, for, that's exactly right. So, yeah. That is why, and that is going back to this original point that we were making about how people are kind of bitchy about this, is that a lot of people freaked out when Stephen King won the National Book Award in, like, 2005. Oh, right. This was our... This was um, what we were talking about. It's because they, you know, they consider it trash, right? And I think this kind of is relevant with how the Oscars just added their popular film category, where it's like, now they Ooh, have... Shit. Yeah, well, now they have this excuse to shove this sort of stuff off into another category. Like, everyone was talking about Get Out, and yes, it did get its its nomination for Best Picture, and we all knew it wouldn't win because they, you know, they wouldn't do that. Um, but it's like, now with this popular film category, it's like, okay, what's going to get shoved there? Would The Witch have been put there? Would It have been put there? Would Get Out go there? Would Mad Max get there? Like, all these things that are representing something bigger by being a genre film. It's so interesting because I feel so many different things about that, the Oscar decision. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel so many different things about this other stuff that we're talking about. But it does boil down to the sort of larger um, issue or thing that goes on where in writing genre is not considered serious and it's not considered literary and the implication is then that it's not considered quality um i mean 
Miss Mel and I, we were in the same writing program at Pitt. Um, I won't speak for you, but for me, I definitely felt from several instructors the that sort of idea and that stigma against genre writing. So in my senior seminar in fiction, um, I remember my instructor legitimately said to us, it was kind of her like closing argument of the class, basically, but she was talking about... Um, you know, different writing styles. And she's like, was like, yeah, you know, character is always so important. You need to focus on your characters, yada, yada. And then she's like, unless you're writing genre fiction is literally what she said. She was like, unless you're writing genre fiction. Yep. And that stuck with me in my brain. Cause I was like, really? Like, that's how you view that sort of thing. I was like, you know, Frankenstein is genre fiction. That's fucking the first right? sci-fi story ever written. No, yeah. I mean, I think my senior sem professor made all kinds of like offhand condescending remarks about about genre and how it was easier to write and how it wasn't really writing or things like that. And and I mean, I, I, I called it as bullshit then. I just... It just made me sad that that was sort of like yeah, the unofficial stance of the program and the yeah. department and that, that that was being imparted to people. And that, I know, know that it influenced people about oh what's considered God. real literature, <laughs> what's considered worth reading and yeah. worth writing. And I've never been one of those people. Um, and I think it's because I grew up surrounded by because i fucking stories. loved myself while i was reading jesus yes. christ oh i mean good again like, don't get me wrong and like everyone loves to read a good war and peace you know sure. good great it's fine i hate what's traditionally literary but i'm saying but if i want to pick up a goddamn fucking horror novel or goddamn mystery and say wow that was really fucking good yeah then i'm gonna do it and just the idea that you can't get the same things from literary, yeah. you know, quote unquote, and genre novels. That you can't get compelling, well-developed, complex characters. It's and like, of course you can. You know what's interesting is that I think to myself a lot, too, when I go, when I think of a new idea. And I, like, start to, like, kind of just sketch some things out for it. Is that I, I honestly, like, look down on myself for it. Because I'm like, well, like, you know, like look at these people who write this literary stuff who don't have to do this big fantasy shit or this big horror shit and still, you know, like, it's like this idea that, like, something like The Outsiders, for example, like, where it's completely, I love The Outsiders, but, like, something like that where it's completely real world and stuff is somehow better than and more powerful than, you know, Bridge to Terabithia, Right. Or something like that, where it's like, basically, I taught myself or I was taught to look down on the idea of incorporating any sort of, like, fantasy or, or magical realism or horror elements and that I should just be telling stories about people in the here and now and that people want to right. read Gentlemen in Moscow more than they want to read, like, It. And that they're, that, that for some reason, It is something like It or, or anything or that along those lines is lesser. Or that those kinds of stories, and you used a perfect example of Bridgetaria, are for children. Yeah. Or less mature readers or less serious readers. Yeah. And it's like, no. And I think that Stephen King has done a lot of work, 
and I don't think he necessarily set out to do this, but I think just because of his career and his resume and his oeuvre that he is a pillar and a bastion for proving that um, genre can do just as much as literary um, can do. And you don't have to be... um, you don't have to be a Bronte yeah. or a Dickens in order to convey stories about the human experience. Yeah. And I think in, you know, and it shows up in all forms of art, right? Because if, again, you know, if you look at the Oscars, the kind of things that normally get um, nominated are like grounded human stories. And, but then you do have these, these um, exceptions, right? Like Return of the King, Winning yeah, and shape of water. and different things like people are willing to say like okay I understand what you're saying and I understand that yes this was a human story in a completely fantastical sense but it's like when it comes to literature people are like such dicks about it I know they're and almost like, behind in a way they are because like and I get it like yes like everyone wants to be the next Shaban but like n- also no they don't <laughs> Yeah, like I'd I'd rather be writing something like I Stephen don't. King. Like I would, and I think to myself because I said this to my mom, the one day because I was talking to her about something, and I was like, "Yeah, I passed the Stephen King test," and she was like, well, "What? What are you talking about?" And I was like, "Well, he said um, if you have written something and someone paid you money for it, and you cash the check and the check didn't bounce and you <laughs> use the money to pay a bill, then I, I being Stephen King, consider you talented." And I was like, I did that. <laughs> and I was so proud of that. And I was like, to me, the idea that Stephen King, not knowing I exist, indirectly thinks that I'm talented is more important to me than someone like Shaban or Chuck Palahniuk or any of these big literary writers saying, oh, yeah, you did a good job. Like yeah. the fact that inadvertently Stephen King has called me talented resonates with me a lot more than, you know. You take that to the bank. Yeah. And I did. <laughs> no, Yeah. And, like, I don't know. You, thank God for him, you know? Yeah. That he's done this work. And and still, I mean, like, there's still more work to be done, of course, because he's... He's literally know. going to be writing, like, after he dies. Like, I guarantee oh, you... Well, I, was just, I just meant more work to be done and getting genre to oh. be taken seriously. No, I was saying, like, he's going to have at least ten books that he wrote before he died that will come oh, out sh- after he died. He's, he's fucking insane. Um, yeah, uh, no, and like Stephen, yeah, like we need more Stephen King. Just to stop making literature and genre mutually exclusive. Yeah. Like, and, yes, everyone loves their good literary darlings, but, you know, why is The Shining well, not a literary can't darling? be a literary darling? Yeah, you know, why, why is... Can't, why can't Carrie or Cujo or... I refuse uh, to read Cujo. Something, you know, X, Y, and Z be a literary darling, yeah. you know? No, and I agree. Because I don't want the dog. It's sad. It is very sad. It's really dark. Listen, I read from the dog's point of view a little bit in the stand, and that's all I fucking needed. (laughs) You've seen the movie, though, Cujo? No? No. Uh, I refuse. I don't want to (laughs) watch Animal Sad. What is it? That's the one they put in the freezer, right? On Friends? That and Little Women? The Shining. Oh, it was The Shining? It wasn't Cujo? I thought it was Cujo. Yeah. Because that's Joey's favorite book. Rachel's is Little Women. They trade. They trade, and they both end up in the freezer. Because Joe gets really sick. Yeah. I don't think he's getting any better. 
remember Rachel's reading it and someone walks in and she's like, ah! she picks up the lamp to like hit him with. <laughs> I think it's Ross. Just the one yeah, who comes she's in. gonna hit Ross. Yeah. Um, but yes, so point here, if there's a point at all besides we love Stephen King, is that people just in general need to stop compartmentalizing their reading and even their movies, just genres in general. Like the idea of genre was invented for marketability, right? And I get this so fucking often when I, you know, like when I deal with agents or like when I try and do things with publishers, like people will say, well, it's like, well, I don't know how to market it. And it's like, well, that's not my fucking problem. <laughs> that's your problem. Like, I, like, you know, you look at things like House of Leaves went through 32 publishers before someone finally published it. It's now regarded as like the prominent work of modern Gothic fiction. Right. But 32 people were like, I didn't know how to, what to fucking do with this. And it's like, I can't, yes, I can't blame you for not having, you know, fucking fortune telling powers. But also, if your view is to look at something and say, well, I don't know how to market it, it's frustrating. And it's frustrating for writers because they don't write things for the sake of your market. They write things because they had a story in their head and they said, I want to tell other people this story. I wasn't necessarily thinking, well, who's reading this? What age right. are they? Are they single? You know, and all these other things. And this happened because I wrote like my second, what will hopefully be my second book right now. It's just a manuscript out in the ether but I sent it to an agent who I'd been talking to for a while about my other book and um she really you know enjoyed the snippet I sent her and she was really on about the title and you know said all these nice things and then I always say to myself nothing matters until somebody says but <laughs> um and her but was that she was like well, I already have a book that's focused. It's a, it's an artificial intelligence. I'll tell you that much. It's about like artificial intelligence. And she's like, well, I already have an artificial intelligence book. And I was like, what mm. does that mean? Like, like this is, then this is what frustrates me is that people have looked at this as a market. They're like, and there was this recent trending topic on Twitter called, it was like hashtag share your rejection. And the majority of it was authors sharing like how they've been rejected by publishers. And so many of them, were authors of color who were basically saying that they were rejected with some form of, oh, well, we already have a insert minority author for this year. Uh. And it's like, and that's like what's frustrating, right? Like, it's, they already have an everything. Of course. They're like, well, we already have our black author, our Asian author, our gay author for this year. And it's like... Like a, a token. Yeah. And it's like, you've turned this into such a narrow funnel that so many things are getting lost. Like, imagine if we didn't have House of Leaves because because it, it, 32 people said, no, like, we just don't get it and we just don't want to deal with it because there's... And I get it. Like, there is so much noise out there, right? Like, the internet exists now. Email exists now. Fan fiction exists now. Anyone can write anything and send it to anyone and clog up everyone's inboxes and you need a way to deal with that. But... You also can't turn yourself off to things. You shouldn't turn yourself off to things based on race. That's starters. You can. Yeah. But for starters, like that's just a decent human thing to do. The human being thing to do. Don't turn yourself off to things because of that. But it's like, don't turn it off because of genre too. Don't say, you know, oh, I already have my sci-fi book for this year. I already have my, my horror book for this year. Or, you know, what have you. It's like, come on. Like, and because I think if, Stephen King proves anything. It's that 
there's a huge audience out there for all things horror and all things genre. Yeah. So you you don't have to limit yourself to how much you're putting out there, publishers. Yeah. Publish all the horror because someone's going to read it. Yeah. I mean, so, go on fucking Reddit onto the, the various subreddits. People, that's how No Sleep started is people were publishing their own, not even publishing, they were just posting. They're just, yeah. Their own horror stories because they didn't know how else Sharing. To, to get it out there. And all they wanted to, all people wanted to do is be like, yo, I got a story to tell you. Um, and yeah, listen, I get it. Publishing books are expensive, but also it's not that expensive that, that you need to, 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 to do that and behave that way. Um, so it just, yeah, I mean, it just, it bugs me when people shut down because of demographic or because of marketability. And that's a big topic right now with the new adult genre and people are like, I don't know what to do with it. So I don't want to deal with it. Um, and so it's kind of ended up becoming this like erotica genre, <laughs> you know, but, um, now there's a Stephen King book we should see. Stephen King does erotica. Gerald's game. <laughs> Oh, yeah, good point. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, you know, and, like, if you look at Carrie when it was first published, like, that wasn't published, you know, that was, what, Simon & Schuster? Like, that was just picked up. It wasn't like, oh, here's our horror novel of the year. And it's interesting hearing him talk about it because he basically got the idea when he was working as a janitor in a high school. Yeah. And they were, like, cleaning up tampons or something. And he just had this image in his head of some girl, like, having no idea what was happening getting her period for the first time and just being like berated by these other girls and and having tampons thrown at her and that was the entire story and then he went yep. to go write it and was like no this fucking sucks and his wife was like no like you've got something here she literally took it out of the trash yeah which if like, you, you need to you need to finish this yeah and if you read a lot of like backstories about um, various famous novels, a lot of them happen that way. A lot of them happen that way. Harper Lee wrote five versions of To Kill a Mockingbird. One of them, she literally threw out her window, and her agent had to go down and pick up the pieces of the manuscript because she tossed it out the window because she was so frustrated. Um, which is nice to know that you know other people get frustrated. I know it's. I always love reading those stories because. I constantly feel that my stuff is Because crap. you are those stories. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck this. I'm done with it. Right? But then but then you do get to a certain point, right? And I thought about what Tabby King said to Stephen King where it's like, you know, that's like the two sides of my brain, right? Where I'm like, this is terrible and going nowhere and I should just stop. And then the other half is like, well, no, you've gotten this far. And like right. something you about it is is still drawing you in and you're unable to like completely let go from it. Right? So it's like, just keep, just keep going and see, you know, see how it happens. And, you know, if you wasted three months, then you wasted three months. <laughs> so. So, and thank and, God Tabitha King did convince him. Because yeah. imagine the world if he had given up. Yeah. And that's, yeah. yeah, I mean, Stephen King is a great. Here we are, like, almost 60 novels later. Oh, I think it's more than 60. I think he's up in the, like, 80s at this point. I think if you count his, like, Novel collections yeah, and short stories, yeah. novellas, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, like, Stephen King is such a great writer for young writers and new writers to read and just pay attention to the things he says because he's never uppity. He's never no. elitist. He, like, very much wants you to be a writer. But, you know, I do love it that also at the same time he says in his book, he's straight up, he's like, listen, 
There are such things as bad writers. Yeah. I'm not gonna not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, and he makes the point, he's like, yes, it's very hard to make a bad writer into a competent writer, and it's very hard to make a competent writer into a great writer, but it is very possible to make a competent writer into a good one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he's out there basically not to discourage you from writing, and I think a lot of, at least our writing program, with the exception of one teacher, I felt was designed to discourage you and kind of thin the field. Um... Yeah, I I only amend it to, to two teachers, yeah. um, just because I took a class with a professor that Miss Mel did not have. I feel like um, I know who it is. Yeah, but we did have the other, I know who you're referring to, mm-hmm. we did share the other professor, or teacher, whatever, instructor, and I'm in complete agreement, though. Yeah. I mean we heard such good things about our program. And then by the time I was done with it, I was like, if it weren't for insert these two here, I might've given up on this. No. And I think about my, my first writing instructor at Pitt who has his own Wikipedia page. Um, I remember oh, like, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. He's, he was such a dick. <laughs> Like, and he liked, like, two or three people out of the class, and all of them were white guys who were writing this elitist, like, didactic crap that, like, would have, not crap, like, whatever. Like, maybe it was good. I don't know. But, like, it's like, it would have sat so well. Well, I don't want to say what they were writing was crap, but it's like, it wasn't for me, right? Yeah. Like, it was very much like Chuck Palahniuk. It was very much like... Uh, Vonnegut and stuff like that and like that's what he wanted the same thing yeah and that's what he wanted out of like he clearly wanted like he I very much felt like he tolerated my presence and the presence of a couple other people who he clearly didn't like in the class and it was like such a bad experience that first that first writing workshop I was like oh this this sucked um and then I got to my second one and it was great and, and, you know, I had the correct teacher and I had, you know, a, a group of people that I ended up, you know, very much trusting with, with things that I had written. Um, so, you know, it, it comes down to environment, but it was just like literally that course outside of that one teacher was very much felt like they were like, here's all the reasons you can't or shouldn't be a writer. Right. Um, and, and thank you for your money and goodbye. Like they were very elitist and they were even saying too, we were, apparently they were trying to put in this prerequisite class to keep people from continuing in the program. Cause they wanted to put this extra class in where you had to get like a B in some prerequisite writing class before they let you start to take your workshops. And, um, I recall the teacher that Mr. Gregerson and I shared was very against that. Like he didn't like it. And the idea that you basically, you know, would force people out of the program. And it's like, yes, I agree with Stephen King that some people are bad writers and you're not going to get over that. But I also don't think a writing program should set out to try and tell you that you're a bad writer. Exactly. Because you could crush the next generation's Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. Because every writer at some point was told that they were not a good writer. Mm-hmm. Like he's, I mean, it's gonna happen. Stephen King is still told by he certain sources that he's Book not Award. a good writer. He won the he National won, Book Award yeah, for like distinguished or contribution to American letters or whatever it was, and you still have people calling. And people him were that. were bitching that that happened. Like you know, that's going to happen. Your and that was something I was thinking about too. 
with that trending topic I mentioned earlier on Twitter, because a lot of people were pointing out that it was kind of coming off as a humble brag from people who had made it, who were like, look where I was and now I'm a millionaire. And it's like, that's great and that's super inspiring, but there's a huge gap between, you know, the kid in a writing program and the New York Times bestseller telling you you can make it. Right. Um, but... You know, it's like you got to keep you got to keep trucking with it. And, you know, you're going to face that rejection your entire life. Like literally your entire life as a writer is waiting on rejection. Like you have to go into everything assuming that people aren't going to want to publish it. People are going to say no because so much of it comes down to fucking dumb luck. Like, yeah, you know, think about every single book you've ever read. Think about the ones that you think are good books. And then think about the ones you think are great books and think about the ones that you have like absolutely hounded your friends and said, you absolutely have to fucking goddamn read this or I'm going to like just beat you over the head with it. And that's what you have to convince someone you're, you have to convince one person out in the world that that's what your book is when you're, when you're trying to get a story out there published, right? Is that you need to find that one person in the 200 that you might email who looks at your book and says, I need to tell every single person that I ever knew to read this book because it's just so good. And and that's the only way you're going to get someone to publish your book because it's the only way they think, right? And if in 200 people you don't find that, that doesn't, that's not indicative of you in any way. I mean, look at To Kill a Mockingbird. You take 200 literary critics, they're going to tell you it's their favorite book of all time. You take 200 college students and they're going to say they fucking hated it because right. context is key. So if you find 200 people who didn't like your book, that doesn't mean your book is bad. It just means you picked the wrong 200 people and, and your needle wasn't in that haystack. And, you know, the, the entire culture around this stuff is, is very lopsided and a certain group of people get kind of the loudest and the most say. And then you've got people like Stephen King who do make a stir and do kind of speak for, you know, the every writer and that sort of thing. And then, you know, they get shit on by yeah. by the, the massive elite group. Um, well, because it's like everything. If you're part of an established order, you don't want to see it upset by an outsider. Yeah. And Stephen King, even given his massive success, is still the ultimate outsider. Yeah. The outsider. The very, outsider. very different hey! outsider. Very different outsider. Very different outsider. Um. But yeah, so the point is, if nothing else, even if horror is not your thing, if the macabre isn't your thing, is that, you know, like, Stephen King cares about writing and cares about letters and cares about, you know, people reading, if, if nothing else. Yeah. Like, he makes a huge point that, you know, you need to be reading. Um, and, you, you know, if you check out his Twitter, he, he's very involved in, in current state of affairs and has great commentary and all that. His tweets are hysterical. He was blocked by Donald Trump. Um, and he's very proud of that. He is. He tweeted when it happened. He was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to go kill myself now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if nothing else, a celebration of, of you know, everything that, that Stephen King has done for writers and done for the literary world and the entertainment he's brought and the knowledge he's imparted and the continued just and horror. The stories to be told. The stories to be told. He's got more in him. He's going to keep going until he drops. He's the um, Tom Brady of, of writing, except I don't hate him. Yeah, but I, mean, I like Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, if Tom Brady wasn't a racist and wasn't terrible. Right. 
Not to say that Tom Brady's a racist, but he also owns a MAGA hat, so I'm going to assume he's a racist. Wild speculations here at Splatter Shatter. I am on record saying I think Tom Brady's a racist. <laughs> on record. It's out there on the internet. Yeah. Forever. Anyway. Hopefully you sat all through over two hours of that. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we definitely, like, digressed a lot at the end. But, but I think we, we brought it back. No, and I think it, it and checked I think out, he, too. And, and it's kind of in the spirit of Stephen King, right? Yeah. Digressions. And, you know, it checks out. Because, again, like, Stephen King is a champion of of, of writers and a champion of those the outside writers. And yeah. So I think he would... I'd like to think that it's it's in keeping with the overall horror theme and the Stephen King theme and just write whatever you goddamn want. If you want to write about the fucking, I don't know, the fucking furry who who goes around town slashing throats in their kitty cat costume, then fucking write it. it. If that's the story you got to tell, then tell it. Tell it. Yeah. Tell it loud. Tell it proud. Yeah. So, here <clears throat> with the last little bit of my voice that is left, because end of summer allergies are a thing, kids. Yes, they are. Um, you can contact us at, you can contact us like um, Ben. Ben and Lindsay. Lindsay. Ben and Lindsay at uh, splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. And shout out to Ben and Lindsay for listening to my instructions and doing the nine and not the six. <laughs> Um, you can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels. If that is too difficult, you can just search it. We will pop right up. You can find us on uh, Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can find us on Instagram at splatterchatter666. Nothing, because it's Instagram. <laughs> you can find um, Mr. Kruger's... I do that every time. You do. Um, you can find Mr. Kruger's blog at splatterchatter666.blogspot.com. You can now find us on Stitcher, if that is your preferred podcatcher. Uh, just search us on Stitcher. We will pop right up. Splatter Chatter. We are not the only Splatter Chatter, but we are the only Splatter Chatter where that is our only name. There's people oh. who, who are Splatter Chatter, subtitle something else. We are just Splatter Chatter, and you will see our logo, and it will be all fine and dandy. Wonderful. And if you want to read my my blogging, my way through my fall reading list, you can go on my website, uh, melaniemoyer.squarespace.com. Yes. Thanks. And tell us Wonderful. about the Patreon, Mr. Critter's pet Patreon. Our Patreon can be found at www.patreon.com slash splatterchatter666. And there you'll be able to find all sorts of information about the podcast, where it came from approximately two years ago. Yes. And what we're doing with it and what we want to do with it moving forward into year three. Of course, once you find all that out and if you choose to become a patron and pledge a monthly donation to us, we've got lots of fun uh, different rewards that um, we have available for you depending on which of the three donor levels you choose. That's one, five, or ten dollars a month. Now, if you're not in a position where you can commit to monthly financial donations, that's totally fine. You can also show your support for our show by giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. Or Stitcher. Or Stitcher. We would absolutely love either or. Um, Ratings and particularly reviews are what keeps us in the charts and in the search results for people looking for horror podcasts. Um, You can also check out uh, the podcast and listen to us on SoundCloud. Um, At this point, I guess I just want to say it's been a really great two years. Yes. 50 episodes. Really, really cool. Um, 
we don't have plans to go anywhere. Yeah, we're going to be around talking. for a lot more. Because this costs us very little money at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and it's fun. We really enjoy doing it. Um, we hope you guys enjoy listening. It's exciting to hear from um, those of you that have reached out to us. Um, hopefully we'll hear from a lot more of you soon. Yes, and we'll check the email better than we have. <laughs> yes, I'm so sorry. Now, moving forward, we're heading into September. Um, our next episode is going to fall right before Miss Mel and I's birthday. Mm. If you're new to the show or if you don't remember, um, Miss Mel and I actually share a birthday. Oh, same do. day, different years. Um, and that is September 9th. So we're coming up on that. Our next episode is going to be right beforehand. And we're going to be checking out and reviewing uh, the 1981 uh, cult classic, Happy Birthday to Me. Yes. So if you guys want to check that out before the next episode, um, probably a good idea, just so you um, know what we're talking about when we give it a review. And... Um, of course, by then it will be uh, the fall times, more or less, and there will be all kinds of fun, exciting things coming for you guys as we move closer and closer to Halloween, including myself. I am going to once again attempt the 31 by 30 challenge. Ooh, 31 you did. 31 different horror movies on the blog. I'm giving it. myself more time this year. I'm going to start the reviews on September 1st. I'm okay. going to give myself full two months to do that's it. That's why I started my fall reading in August. Yeah, <laughs> so I was like, there's going to be a lot here. There's a lot going. Yes. So be on the lookout for those. I've already got some uh, great titles that I'm planning on reviewing for you guys. Some favorites of mine. I have some titles that I'm waiting to watch for the first time and review. It should be a good time. Well, I think, unless you have anything else to add, Miss Mel, that's going to wrap up episode 50. Yeah. Two year anniversary special. Um, I hope you guys have stuck with all of our meandering. And even if you haven't, I guess that's okay. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's been a very casual, long discussion. <clears throat> Dark Say goodbye for now. We are going to remind you guys to keep up the creep. Do it. Until we check in with you guys next for, remember, happy birthday to me. Yes. And until. And happy birthday that, to us. Happy birthday to us. I see what you did there. Yeah. And until the birthday party, we will say au revoir, adios, and das vidante.